Hey, two different trades, two different leagues, the same two owners? This sounds a little fishy. We'll talk about that and more with Todd Zola of Masters Ball, Rotowire, and ESPN next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 10th. It's show number 28 of the 2016 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday show for you. We'll talk with Todd Zola of Masters Ball, Rotowire, and ESPN about trading ethics, about his recent updated top 20 hitter and pitcher lists for the rest of the season, his studs and duds, and more. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, looking at Jason Hayward, Adam Wainwright, Wellington Castillo, and more. And from the American League, Jock Thompson looks at Adrian Beltre, Justin Morneau, two closer changes, and more. We'll also have our usual commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our Minor League Minute, analyst Rob Gordon reports on Pirates outfield prospect Austin Meadows. In our Playing Time commentary, Ryan Bloomfield looks at the Angels' shaky closer situation and the back end of Arizona's rotation. In our Frequent Flyers commentary, Alex Becky looks at Justin Morneau and Minnesota right-hander Brandon Kinsler. In our Weekend Pitcher Matchup segment, Greg Fishwick looks at four matchups, including a Saturday National League battle of young pitching stars as Philadelphia right-hander Aaron Nola heads to Washington to face Nationals right-hander Tanner Roark and a Sunday American League face-off that sees Detroit right-hander Michael Fulmer at Yankee Stadium to face right-hander Michael Pineda. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about my all-value team. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Justin Morneau is back in the big leagues. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday edition, as always, our League Watch News reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League, and leading off, it's the National League report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. It's always good to be here. Chicago Cubs got some bad news this week, Nick. Jorge Soler goes to the disabled list. It's got covered at playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. How does the playing time shake out as a result of this injury? Uh, You know, a couple of possibilities. They brought out... Albert Elmora from the from the minors, and it looks as though he's going to be primarily a backup at this point. Uh, so far, he's only gotten uh, gotten I think uh, five at bats, and so probably going to be a, a backup and end up heading back to the minors without getting significant playing time. It looks like what will happen is just extra playing time for Javier Baez. Um, you know, that's one of those things that that uh, you just don't know what to expect from Baez at this point. He's been He's been good so far this season. He has not uh, struck out as much as, as we we might think he would. He's kept his batting average up. Uh, so right at this point, 274 BA, four home runs, 15 RBIs, three stolen bases. So we're seeing the speed and the power that we know he has. Probably not going to see a breakout from him this season, but uh, certainly a very solid, I think, fill-in uh, at this point. It looks like uh, he may get some time at third base, which would free up Chris Bryant to go and uh, run around in the outfield a little bit. Uh, how does that affect uh, Bryant's playing time? 
Well, you know, I don't think it affects it much at all. He's playing pretty much full-time anyway, either in the outfield or at third base. So, uh, you know, Bryant's in there just, just every day. It's just a matter of where he plays. And Baez, as we know, of course, is um, is at this point plays all over the place. Second base, third base, third base, shortstop. He's played even one game at first base or three games at first base so far this year and two in left field. So the nice thing about having Baez on your roster, especially if you've got a bench and can move him around, as you need him from week to week, uh, is that he, he's he's eligible at multiple positions. And so is Bryant, of course. He's got 31 games in the outfield this year already, so it's not like he's going to uh, embarrass himself out there or cause himself any injury. You always worry a little bit when a guy starts playing out of position that something could happen because he's just physically not used to it, but that shouldn't be a problem for Chris Bryant, and certainly it's not going to affect his hitting at all. Uh, one of the columns we talked about last week, Nick, was Ray Murphy's speculator column on buy-high candidates. That's players who are doing well and um, somebody might be trying to sell them high and you should be interested. The flip side this week, uh, the speculator column looking at sell low candidates. These are players who are underperforming and don't figure to get any better, but they have big enough names that you might be able to swing a deal and get something of use. Uh, we'll, we have one pitcher and one hitter we want to talk about. Let's start with the hitter, the Cubs, Jason Hayward. Always waiting for this guy to come through. He just never seems to quite get there. Yeah, waiting for him to waiting for him to break out. At 26 years old, you know, you, you would think he's age 26 with experience, so this ought to be it, right? He's got more than 3,000 major league bats and really cannot deliver the kind of peak season that we, we've we been waiting for since he looked so good when he first broke in at age 20 and 21. Uh, that just has never happened. It, it's um, and, and his metrics this year are, um, are are beginning to be a bit troubling. A high ground ball rate, which, uh, which limits the power. Uh, a loss of contact this year. His contact rate is down, so he can't sustain a, a B.A., uh, he's got a 228 batting average backed by a 238 expected batting average, which isn't what we expected at all. So uh, stolen bases have, have generally kind of kept his value up, but uh, as he keeps getting to first base less often, uh, 20 stolen bases is, uh, you begin to wonder if he's even going to make that level. So um, certainly there'll be some aggression. He'll do a little bit better, but uh, I don't think we're going to see much real breakout from, from Jason Hayward. Uh, certainly a guy that I think I would be looking to sell if I had him on my roster and someone wanted to buy. Well, last year he was a $27 player in 5x5, five five, and a few years ago in 2012, a $26 player. And I guess that's what you'd call kind of above average. I think what we were all looking for was that $33, $34 season, and that really never came. And now this year he's muttering around in the low teens, and it does uh, look like he's going to have a lot of trouble even getting back to that $20 plateau. Yeah, he might. I mean, we're looking at, uh, at a projected total from him of 11 home runs, 19 stolen bases, 256 batting average. Uh, you know, certainly there are, there are a lot of other players out there who can um, uh, can produce the same kind of numbers. So, uh, I, you know, it's one of those guys you kind of get tired of waiting on. And uh, if somebody wants to buy him, I would certainly be a seller. And you're right, the one thing that really worries me about this is a real big decline in contact rate. 84% last year, 83% the year before that. This year, barely over 75%. That start, that's really a trend that's going in the wrong direction. Uh, we're talking about these sell-low candidates. The other name that jumped out at me uh, in the column was uh, St. Louis starting pitcher Adam Wainwright. Yeah, that's somebody to really take a look at at this point. And I'd be a little more hesitant to, to jump on the sell Wainwright bandwagon. Ray made some good points at the time he wrote the column, but you know these things these things change. So that's the kind of thing to keep an eye on. Um, when he wrote the column on Wainwright, uh, you know this guy's got a, a really good pedigree, but um, 
risk level. He, he was coming back last year from an Achilles injury, uh, so we had a small sample size. Uh, and maybe that last year wasn't uh, his 2014 wasn't as good as his skills indicated, and that's a long time ago for a pitcher in the mid 30s. So can Wayne Wright ever get back to what he was? Well, at the time Ray wrote the column, Wayne Wright was looking really, really bad. Um, since then, since that happened, we've seen suddenly three uh, PQS four or five starts in a row and four out of his last five. So he seems to be rounding into form just a little bit. He's giving up giving up earned runs right now. The earned run average is probably not going to dip down below three. But I'm seeing more from Wainwright now than I was two weeks ago. Um, but he still has a 5.21 earned run average, expected earned average of 4.18, uh, BPV at 76, which is below elite levels. Things have been a little bit, bit better over the past month. Uh, but my my feel on Wainwright is right now he's a mid-three kind of ERA pitcher, not a guy who's going to suddenly break out through the end of the season. So uh, more than just slow out of the gate, I think we're seeing a pitcher that's not at the same level he was a couple of years ago. This is an interesting case here, Nick, for me. I, I look at him and, and a lot of what you say rings true, especially that 4.8 per uh, 9 strikeout rate. His dominance is way down. 4.8 is barely majorly worthy, really. And yet... He has had some pretty good years in the past and not that long ago. And and what I wonder about is you have an older pitcher and he's coming back from a fairly serious injury. Maybe it's just taking him a little time to work into this. You know what it makes me think, Nick, is that Adam Wainwright could be a pretty good sell-low candidate and a pretty good buy-low candidate for somebody else if you're willing to take a bit of a risk. Yeah, he might, he might, he might at that. You know, there are always pitchers who, as they get into their 30s, have got to change and adapt their style to, to figure out uh, if their velocity is down a little bit or, or something's not working quite the way it used to when they were a bit younger. But but a real pitcher, as opposed to a thrower, will figure out how to do that. And we've seen that, we've certainly seen that happen. Uh, Justin Verlander is an example where he hit a bad patch a few years ago. Everybody said, ah, heck with him, he's done. Well, he's not done. He's back pitching very, very well. And that's happened to a number of pitchers as they age and figure out how to pitch differently based upon their physical abilities and the fact that they pitched a long time and kind of know this ball game. It's a, that is an interesting point. And something else that I noticed when I was looking at Wainwright's skills chart is we sometimes get caught up in decimal points and velocity, it seems to me. And uh, 2012, he was in the ni- low 90s, 90.1, then 91.1, then 90.2, and this year at 89.8. And you, you look at it and you go, well, geez, he used to be in the 90s. Now he's in the 80s. He's four-tenths of a mile an hour down. It's not that much. Right, right. Not that much. Not that much at all. Uh, you know, and, and so you look back and, and, and it's not as though there's been a, a continual progression in loss of velocity. I mean, this guy was throwing 89.4 back in, back in 2007. So, uh, you know, there's not that much of a change in velocity. That looks as though it's fairly stable. Uh, so... Uh, yeah, as you're right, we get caught up in tenths of decimal points, and, and sometimes uh, that's not what we need to be looking at. Certainly, his uh, first pitch strike rate is up around 66%. Uh, could be a career high or close to it. Swinging strike rate is down a little bit, and that's a, that's a concern. Like I said, I could, see a, I could see selling low on Adam Wainwright. I could see buying low on Adam Wainwright just as well. Uh, Stephen Nickrand, our starting pitching buyer's guide columnist, was looking at pitchers with big base performance value skills splits between facing right-handed hitters and left-handed hitters, and one of the names on his list was Cincinnati starter Dan Straley. Yeah, Dan Straley is uh, an interesting case, and you know what you see as you look at Dan Straley, what it looks like, uh, as you, you see with what he's done recently, it looks like a lot of inconsistency, but 
uh, Stephen was right in pointing out that the problem is it depends upon how many uh, how many right-handed bats, how many left-handed bats are is he facing. Against right-handers, Dan Straley, 9.4 DOM, 2.7 control, 41% ground rate, 114 BPV. So as long as he's facing right-handers, this guy is a is a top-notch pitcher. But when he starts to face left-handed batters, 7.3 dominance, 5.3 control, walking a lot more of them. Ground ball rate drops to 39%, a 6 BPV. So this guy has struggled for a long time against left-handed pitchers. Doesn't seem to be getting any better. Uh, struggles with, with gopheritis. Um, a high-risk investment, I think, at this point, given that he's pensing in Cincinnati, where balls go flying out at a, uh, at a horrendous rate. Uh, I see a lot of downside with Dan Straley, as Steven does at this point. Uh, and a guy that, if, if the managers figure out, as they probably already have, that if I get my left-handed bats in there, we're going to knock this guy around a bit, uh, things could, uh, could quickly go south for him. It's the home runs that worry me a lot as well, Nick, because of the ballpark and because of Dan Straley's track record. He does give up home runs. There's just no two ways about it. He's given them up against left-handers and right-handers both with that uh, bias towards left-handed hitters, as you said. Uh, Dan Straley is a very risky candidate, even if you're looking for an injury replacement for a couple of weeks. I think uh, Stephen hits the nail on the head when he says, take a look at who's uh, coming up for him as far as his next team, uh, next couple of teams, because if it's a big left-handed heavy power hitting lineup you might be better off looking someplace else right right yeah if they're right-handed heavy teams then that's that's probably a good thing but left-handed heavy teams is where you've got the problem with australian uh and, and you're right a 40 percent fly ball rate uh in great american ballpark not a good thing finally uh steven also had a uh, batter's buyer's guide column looking at the same kind of thing with left-right splits but with hitters and uh one of the names that i saw there was uh, the arizona catcher wellington castillo yeah, Wellington Castillo, that, you know, that's kind of interesting because we talked a couple of weeks ago about Chris Herman and his emergence in, uh, in Arizona as a kind of an under-the-radar uh, catcher that, uh, that uh, might make some sense. And uh, Chris Herman is, really matches right-handers, a 945 OPS against right-handers. And then you look at Castillo against right-handers, a, uh, a poor pitch recognition, 0.21i against right-handers, uh, poor isolated power. But against lefties, a 1.067 OPS. Wow. I mean, that's huge. And what, what uh, Arizona has done at this point is put together an incredible platoon, a catcher, giving them one of the best catchers between the two of them, certainly in terms of offense in the, in the, uh, in the National League. So, and, and those numbers, what Steven said, and I think he's right, those numbers suggest that the job share is not going, to con- not going, going anywhere. They're going to continue sharing that position probably for the foreseeable future. Uh, because together they make one heck of a catcher. Reminds me of the old days with the Baltimore Orioles in the late 70s and early 80s, Nick. Do you remember Earl Weaver used to platoon uh, John Lowenstein and Gary Renneke in left field be deliberately because they had such great platoon advantages, and uh, he explained to anybody that would listen between them, hey, they make a hell of an outfielder. I guess if you could accomplish the same thing in fantasy, you might start by uh, looking at a platoon of the two Arizona catchers. Maybe we ought to tweak our fantasy rules a little bit that allow you to stick a platoon in uh, in a particular spot in your in your fantasy lineup. Yeah, or just have both of them. Uh, yeah, it'd be an interesting way to draft. Say, uh, I nominate the Arizona catching platoon or all Arizona catchers and, and uh, play it that way. It'd be interesting. <laughs> Thanks a million for joining us again this week. We'll catch up with you again in seven days' time for more National League news. Uh, thank you, Patrick. 
Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com, and he covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn to the American League and BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hi, PD. How you doing? I'm doing pretty well. A busy week. Uh, always like that in uh, making up making up a podcast, have a, a week full of interesting news. And uh, let's start off, we've got a couple of injuries to talk about. Adrian Beltre, the potential Hall of Fame third baseman in Texas, seems to have tweaked a hamstring. We haven't seen much about it yet, uh, but what do you think's going on with Adrian Beltre? And what happens if he needs a few days off or a short DL stint? Yeah, you know, this really kind of shines a light on the old saying that how sometimes position and playing time crunches take care of themselves. Uh, it also shines a light on how stupidly deep the Rangers organization is. Uh, if it's a short-term injury, which that's what they think it is right now, obviously Jerickson Profar could, could get time at third base. He's a good athlete. Uh, um, he can field the position. They're looking for a way to pigeonhole him into the lineup regularly uh, while not still giving up on Prince Fielder and Keith Moreland, or I'm sorry, Mitch Moreland. I always do that. Uh, yeah. Longer term, if Beltre needs a DL stint, they have Joey Gallo at third base. So um, the Rangers have an embarrassment of riches. Well, I don't know if I'd call Fielder and Moreland riches. <laughs> I'd call them an embarrassment, all right. Uh, how much longer can they these two guys hang on in the major leagues? Yeah, well, Prince has that big contract, and, and uh, uh, Moreland had the good year last year. Um, I think they're going to get some time off unless they start producing. Uh, it's, it's clear. I mean, they've 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 been given some time off since Odor's come come uh, come aboard. I'm sorry, since um, since uh, Jerickson Profar's come on board. But um, I think a lot of these guys are going to be playing part time over the next two three weeks in hopes that somehow maybe some of the rest and head clearing can get their bats going again. Fielder's current on base percentage is 265. He's slugging 302. A 567 OPS jock is something you'd expect from the 25th guy in your roster, if that. And he's not contributing with the glove. He's not certainly not going to help you out as a pinch runner. I just really question how long the Texas Rangers, who have aspirations this year to go somewhere in the playoffs, can hang on to this dead weight. And I don't mean that in a uh, insulting way. It's just uh, he's just not doing anything to help. No, I agree, and there's nothing in his BPIs that suggests uh, he's been that unlucky. Um, there's just nothing really attractive here. Um, the Rangers are really between a rock and a hard place on that one because uh, I think you're right. I, 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 I just I don't see how they, they keep him on the 25-man roster. Maybe a well-timed DL stint, send him down to the minors, uh, get his back going, who knows. You mentioned that they called up Jerickson Profar to take uh, uh, Rugnet Odor's suspension spot. But Profar hit so well and played so well that when Odor came back, Profar's got to stay up. How does that work if Beltrade doesn't stay out for a good long time? Yeah, Profar took over the leadoff spot, and he was just a catalyst uh, for the last week or two. Uh, um, he, if you look at his look at his numbers, he's batting three eighty nine. Uh, he's not walking a lot, but the hits are falling, and uh, um, he's making good contact. Um, Basically, uh, Profar's moving around. He's gonna he's gonna get some time at DH. He's gonna get some time at uh, at second base. Uh, maybe a few games at uh, shortstop. Stop. Although uh, Elders, Elvis Andres is uh, is doing a pretty good job over there offensively right now. Um, they're gonna move him around the field, and uh, again, they're gonna play it by ear. I think. Another injury deep in the heart of Texas, Carlos Correa had a bit of an ankle sprain. It's going to put Marwin Gonzalez, I think, at shortstop, the uh, super utility guy. You wrote a 
playing time tomorrow piece about the American League West the other day about the problems Houston's having with their corner infielders and the potential promotion of Alex Bregman. If Korea goes on the DL even for 15 days, things get a lot more interesting a lot faster, don't they? Yeah, they really do. I mean, Bregman's just been killing it in uh, in Double A. Uh, I think I I think I mentioned he had close to a, a 1.000 OPS with 12 homers. He had an outstanding uh, walks to strikeout rate, 26 to 19 over 163 at bats. He was hitting over 300. He's moved off his natural shortstop position to get seven games in at third base, which was kind of a window into management's thinking in that Bregman obviously wasn't going to uh, supplant uh, Correa. But now if uh, if Correa has to miss any extended time, he's not expected to, but if it happens, obviously Bregman is going to be the, the first guy up. There's no doubt in my mind what Houston will do in that particular situation. I was thinking that they might just stick with Marwin Gonzalez. He's been he's played pretty well. I know they like to move him around in that uh in that super utility role I mentioned, but uh, Houston also thinks that they're going places. Can they afford to take a chance on Alex Bregman in the middle of a competitive season? Well, Marlon Gonzalez hasn't done that well this year. He had a really good year last year. I think he's hitting 236 right now. He's hit a few home runs, but he's struggled a little bit too. And the Astros have a problem over at first base. They're not getting any production there. Tyler White has hit below 200 since the first uh, two weeks of the season. He's due for a demotion, so Gonzalez is spending a lot of time over there as well. Anybody else? Uh, we've got uh, Luis Valbuena, a uh, high strikeout, high power guy. A.J. Reed perhaps could get called up. They've got some options here. I think what's going to happen is eventually they will call A.J. Reed up as well. Now, now keep in mind... Uh, Reed is, uh, is still having uh, a few contact issues. Uh, he's making about 73% contact in the minors, uh, and he's only hitting 239, but he's, he's doing it with good power, and, and Houston's pretty high on him. I think eventually they will call Reed up uh, to replace uh, White. Um, it's possible they call Bregman up beforehand, and they move Luis Valbuena across the diamond from third base to first base to open up third base for Bregman. So they've got a lot of options, but uh, Houston ha is having problems getting some offense from the corner. So I expect moves to be made in the next two to four weeks. Staying with the Astros, there's a closer change in Houston. Now, what's going to go on there? Is there going to be a committee, as we've often heard, or are they going to go with Will Harris, who's having a terrific year? They say it's a committee, but the last two saves have gone to Will Harris. Houston made a really good run. Um, they're, they're back uh, just a touch below 500 um, in terms of wins and losses. They can't afford any more blown saves, and Gregerson's been doing a lot of that lately. Um, he's been eased out of the closer role. Ken Giles is still giving up too many runs in key situations. You know, at the same time, it's kind of funny. But, uh, most of the year we spent talking about the competition between Gregerson and Giles. Will Harris is, has a, a scoreless string going on of uh, something like, uh, tw what, 27 innings now. He's given up one run, and he gave that up in his first appearance of the year. Um, he's pitched, he's had uh, something like 20, uh, 27 scoreless appearances in a row. He's got an ERA of uh, point, point three three, I believe. And um, it, it, you got to go with who can slam the door in the ninth, and I think that's what uh, uh, manager uh, A.J. Hinch is going to do. I think he's the closer right now. I think I don't think Hinch is going to name him closer for a while. I think he wants to be flexible to change his mind. Giles still has good stuff, and he and uh, they want the flexibility to use Harris. I think in high leverage situations, depend on what call, what calls for it. And I think they want the ability to try to work Gregerson and Giles out of their funks and give them maybe some safe three run saves in the ninth inning. Uh, 
So it's an interesting situation. If you're going to bet on the closer right now, bet on Harris, but bet on things changing over the next two to four weeks. A couple of weeks ago, Corey Schwartz of MLB.com was our feature guest, and he mentioned in Houston not to take your eye off Michael Feliz. Yeah, Michael Felice has been outstanding, and that's definitely another good name. I just penciled him in for some save opportunities recently. He His his domination has been just amazing. He struck out almost 13 batters per nine innings. Um, his control has come a long way, uh, uh, much better than it was last year. He's walking just a little over two batters per nine innings. Um, he's a guy who could uh, who could definitely close out a few games for Houston. The only drawback to Feliz is his experience and getting around Harris right now. And really, how much experience do you need to fire 13 strikeouts per nine innings in a bullpen role? It seems like uh, he's a tailor-made for some kind of a high-leverage situation. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Feliz is, is definitely someone to watch. If you're, it, 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 Like I said, it's really interesting. It was Giles and Gregerson early on, and now I think the favorites to get saves right now are probably Harrison Feliz. A couple of moves by the Chicago White Sox. First, they've traded to acquire James Shields from San Diego. They put him right into the rotation, and he got rocked his first time out. They've waived Matt Latos. What is Shields' prognosis now that he's back in the American League and pitching in that little park? Yeah, um, I think most people realize who are watching this thing is uh, that uh, Shields really isn't the pitcher he used to be. He's, what, in his mid-30s now. Um, he's in a home-run friendlier park than Petco. He's now a back-of-the-rotation guy. He's a six-inning pitcher, and he and he comes with that kind of risk. And you, and you saw it on display uh, um in uh, in his first game back, um, I, I'm not I'm not all that uh, hopeful about James Shield going over the American League now, where they have um, um, the, the DH. Uh, I think he's due for a a bumpy road. When you look at his PQS log, uh, it's a scale of one to five, where four and five are the best results, zero and one are the worst. And with San Diego, it was all twos and threes, a couple of fours uh, scattered here and there. And uh, his last outing for for San Diego and his first one for the White Sox were both PQS zeros. He didn't get into the out of the third inning, I should say. Eight hits, uh, sixteen total hits, seventeen total runs, five total home runs. I don't know if this guy's rosterable in a fantasy league, even in an American League only. No, I would agree. Unless you can take some pitching risk, uh, he's not a guy you want starting in too many situations in the American League right now. Chicago also signed 35-year-old free agent Justin Morneau to help man their struggling DH and first base spots. Uh, Morneau's been struggling for the last few years with post-concussion problems. What's his outlook, and if should he manage to get on the field and stay there, who loses some playing time? Well, he's mildly interesting in that he actually did rebound in, in 2014 and 2015 after, as you mentioned, his concussion issues. His concussion issues really made him a non-fantasy factor for three years before that. But he had 300 with decent power over the past two years. Now, the caveat with that is that he did it in Coors Field, and as you mentioned, I think he's 35 years old. Um, the cell is still a, a positive uh, environment that makes him a little bit intriguing. But he's coming off of elbow surgery, and he's not going to be ready to play until mid-late late July. So we really don't know what we have in Morneau right now. And it sounds like we won't know for a while who's going to lose playing time should Morneau come off the uh, DL and be ready to go in mid in late July. Uh, there's a few guys on the roster who look like they could lose some playing time. I don't suspect that it's going to be Jose Abreu considering his salary, but what about Avisail Garcia? Yeah, no, that that's my take as well. They're going to give Abreu uh, every chance to uh, 
um, break out of his uh, funk. Um, I think he had a better second half last year than he did in the first. He struggled a little bit early on. Um, but uh, um, Garcia is the primary target. Uh, he's hitting 244 with five home runs over 164 at-bats. Uh, obviously, going back to what happened in Texas, these things can take care of themselves through injuries and slumps uh, and what have you. Um, but uh, right now, I would say if you're looking for someone to lose time to Morneau, it's going to be Avisal Garcia's. The White Sox also called up uh, prospect Tim Anderson and sent Jimmy Rollins down. This was an experiment that failed uh, pretty miserably for the White Sox. They also have Tyler Saladino ready to play shortstop, and he's been playing shortstop for the first few games since Rollins left. Uh, what chance does Tyler Saladino have to be an impact player, and what do you think of Tim Anderson's chances? Yeah, I'm not sure about Saladino's pack to be, uh, chances to be an impact player. Um, um, but he's going to get some playing time even with Anderson up. Uh, the concern with Anderson, obviously, along with his inexperience, is his defense. And that's probably one of the reasons they, they got rid of Rollins, who wasn't producing offensively either. He was only hitting 221. Uh, but his defense wasn't that great either. So I guess the White Sox are saying, hey, what can we lose? Let's bring up Anderson. Anderson had really heated up in AAA. He was, uh, was hitting over 300 for a long time now, and he's been running. Um, um, this is an interesting fantasy call-up if, if he's uh, available in your league, particularly for his speed. And as you said, a little bit of pop. The last time I checked, he was uh, somewhere on four or five home runs down in Charlotte and AAA. And uh, those 11 stolen bases in 55 games in the last article I saw make this guy look like he could be something. But again, as you say, if he can't uh, manage it with the leather, he puts the White Sox in a bit of an awkward position because I think they surprised themselves. They think they have a chance to go to the playoffs this year because the American League Central is up for grabs. Yeah, it doesn't look like anyone's running away in that American League Central. So uh, there's going to be at least two or three teams grasping, you know, and fighting in that one for the next uh, for the next two months. So um, yeah, the White Sox have made a flurry of moves here, and it's going to be fun to watch and see how they play out. Well, relying on uh, BaseballHQ.com, I actually picked up Tim Anderson a couple of weeks ago, uh, expecting that this move might take place. Now I'm hoping that he uh, pans out as a prospect and quick. <laughs> yeah. It's an American League-only league, so I've got to take those kind of chances. But uh, he's certainly got a pedigree in, in, uh, in the minors, that's for sure. And finally, Jock, uh, Oakland made a couple of moves. They traded uh, Chris Coughlin back to the, to the uh, Chicago Cubs, got back uh, Arizmendi Alcantara. But more importantly for Oakland's chances of doing anything this year, which were limited at best to begin with, they put Rich Hill, who's having an outstanding year, on the DL. Yeah, um, Hill looks like he may only miss a start or two. They weren't even sure whether they were going to put him on the on the DL. I mean, it's a groin strain. It could develop into something more. If it's only a start or two, you could see Zachary Neal or Eric Surkamp make more spot starts. Daniel Mengen is uh, is a more intriguing name down in AAA. He could make his major league debut, and he might be somebody uh, worth picking up. He's kind of a mid to back of the rotation guy. He's very good control. Uh, doesn't strike out a lot of people, but he gets outs. And uh, in Oakland, uh, that's that's a pretty interesting resume. Yeah, anybody who can get outs in Oakland, uh, I'm sure they'll more be more than happy to give him a give him a bit of a whirl. Is he any chance he's going to be a useful fantasy asset? I don't imagine in a mixed league you'd want to, but what about in a single league format? Well, yeah, you know, I mean, he could be obviously. I mean, we're talking now. We're talking about uh, we're almost halfway done the season. Uh, we're getting into mid June, so anything can happen in three months. Um, 
I would not break the bank. He's not one of the best pitching prospects in baseball, but I, he has a chance to be useful, particularly in a pitching park like Oakland. But uh, obviously, he's no sure thing. And I was looking earlier at the uh, BaseballHQ.com organization reports for 2016, and the Oakland report doesn't mention Mengen at all. And their number two prospect was Sean Manea, who has not done well in the major leagues in his first go round. Yeah, and uh, and I was kind of skeptical about Men or not Menken uh, Manea doing uh, well in his first go around for a lot of reasons, um, and I'm I'm probably the same way about uh, uh, Menken. Um, basically, my my take on somebody like him is, if you really need a pitching flyer, yeah, go for it, but you know, expect there to be bumps. And let's touch on the Chris Coughlin deal. I didn't really understand what they were doing, but it certainly seems to create a little bit of clearance in what was a 22-way traffic jam in the outfield D8 spots out there. So uh, Rod Truesdell said there's going to be more playing time for some players. The question is who? Yeah, and none of the names really jump out at you. I mean, Coco Crisp, he's not even rosterable in most leagues. League. Same with Tyler Ladensdorf and Jake Smolinski. Perhaps uh, Billy Butler may get a few more uh reps at DH with Chris Davis and getting more outfield time. Um, I think the outfield right now, for the most part, going forward is going to be some combination of of Davis and, and Billy Burns and, and Coco Crisp. You've got Josh Reddick uh, getting off the DL at some point, so he'll be back. But I, I don't think any of the names are really that important that, that Rod mentioned in, in his column. I think this presages a lot of other Oakland moves that are going to be coming down the pikes. So I wouldn't be surprised to see Oakland trade for for um, maybe young outfield prospect or help. They've got a lot of corner um, pro- infield prospects that uh, some of whom you might be seeing at the end of June or sometime in July, August um, after they've made their moves. But it wouldn't be surprised me given the organizational situation on outfielders, which is they're they're pretty barren if they go out and. Uh, look for some outfield talent when they start trading some of these pieces away. The problem I see is that uh, you mentioned that very few of these guys could grace a uh, reasonably decent ro- a fantasy roster. Who'd want them as trade chips? The, the name I keep seeing in the trade rumors is Sonny Gray. Do you see them doing that? Um, it's possible. I think a lot depends on how Sonny Gray rebounds off this DL stint. Uh, he had a pretty good start his first time back. The guy I think they're, that who is who might be their best trade chip uh, along with Gray is uh, Danny Valencia, who has just been crushing the ball over at third base. He's he's totally uh, shed that uh, lefty killer platoon image he had uh, before the last couple of years. Uh, this is a guy who has another year of club control, um, which will make him attractive to some contender. Um, I, I would be very surprised if he's on Oakland's roster at the end of the, uh, the, the trading deadline. Many, many things to watch, many, many things to wait for. Uh, Jock, appreciate you taking the time to fill us in, and we'll catch up with you again in a week's time. Sounds good, PD. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com, and he covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, it's our feature expert interview. It's Todd Zola coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. Ventura is waiting. But Valenci staring in, has his sign. A 2-1 pitch. The drive in the air to deep right field. That ball headed toward the wall. That ball is out of here. Out of here. A game-winning grand slam home run off the bat of Robin Ventura. Ventura with a grand slam. They're mobbing him before he can get to second base. The Mets have won the ball game. Baseball HQ Radio.
Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for our feature expert interview, and it's our pleasure to be joined by an old friend of the podcast from Masters Ball, RotoWire, and ESPN.com. It's Lord Zola himself, Todd Zola. Todd, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Great to be back, Patrick. Uh, it's been a little while. has been a little while, so we have plenty to talk about, which is always something good because uh, we always struggle to find things to talk about on the show. Oh, yeah, that that's, yeah. Out in public, I don't say much, but, you know, put a microphone in front of my face in the privacy of my own home and you can't shut me up. Yeah, there you go. I know exactly how you feel. Uh, before we get going on all of the stuff we have to catch up on, how are your teams doing? Usually, <clears throat> when you ask me that question, I have to make an excuse you know, that things aren't going well, but, um, they're, they're going pretty well. I, uh, been sharing first place with, uh, HQ's Phil Hertz and NL Tout Wars. Everybody's rooting for Phil, I think, because I've already let it be known that if I win the, uh, the meal at Foley's is going to be a chicken Caesar, no dressing, lemon slice on the slot on the side. So I think Phil's picking up some fans in Tout Wars because I don't want that on the menu. And then the, uh, mixed labor, I've been, uh, sharing first place with Howard Bender from Fantasy Alarm. We seem to be trading it off. Whichever of us has more pitchers going that day, it's still early enough in the season that that you know that bump up and or down in strikeouts is uh, is so we're trading places, so to speak. So so far so good. A lot of work to be done. You know, it's better to be in this position than you know trying to tell you how I'm going to catch up. But uh, you know, so far so good. How about in the NFBC? I know you always have quite a few teams in NFBC. Doing pretty well there too. A uh, little little concern. I've got a one of my teams is, is an AL only team, and uh, let's just say that I I had the Fab Hammer. I no longer do because I picked up some guy named James Shields, and um, I, I I was called on a I was called on a humble brag on Facebook last night because I said something like my lead is dwindling, and uh, yeah I'm you know I'm I'm leading the league, which is a good thing. Um, but, uh, man, I, uh, I put in a bid on Shields, more of a, def- not so much, if I didn't want him, I wouldn't have bid, but I didn't bid a ton, so it was just kind of like, I don't want to let someone get him really cheap and have him be good and get beat, so I, I lost a hammer, but I don't feel pot committed that I need to use him every time. Had him in the, had him in the lineup last night, a little bit concerned, but I don't feel as though I, you know, all it means is I no longer have the fab hammer, I still have plenty to get by. But if there's a big trade at the deadline, I don't have the, uh, at least at this point, I don't have the hammer to get that player. So I'm not giving up on Shields, but man, after last night, it was a, it was a long night because they had Jesse Hahn going too. That is a long night. Uh, we'll talk more about James Shields in a second. Uh, before we get uh, get to individual players, uh, I wanted to talk to you about the topic of trading because we're starting to get to that time of year when uh, fantasy teams start, uh, th- the owners of fantasy teams, I guess more uh, more precisely, start thinking about where their team is, where it's going, what they need to do, uh, what they might be able to do, and so on. And as a result, I'm seeing a lot of trade negotiation articles at all the various touting sites, and more questions along the "Should I do this deal?" type of thing on the HQ subscriber forum. So let's talk about trading first. How much do you typically deal in a year, experts league or otherwise? I guess the answer is not enough. I'm a lot better at telling people how to trade than I actually am at trading <laughs> when it when it when it comes to making a trade. So in, in both the teams I d- discussed or mentioned, the both Tut Wars teams, they're actually both in a similar boat. When, and I actually this is this is by by plan. This is just how I, I construct teams. 
Uh, I'm down on the list in both saves and steals, and I could make a big jump by acquiring a stolen base guy and a saves guy in both leagues. And it, not that I haven't tried, but uh, you know, I, there's still plenty of time to do that. So next time we talk of him doing better, it's probably because I managed to pull off a deal. Um, I'll make a couple of, I don't want to say I'm token deals, but I'm probably uh, a little bit below average as far as the uh, you know the tout wars and the labor crowds go as far as trading goes. In my keeper leagues, I think I'm pretty much you know dictated by the team if whether I'm going forward or dumping, and that's sort of a different story. It's sort of in you know in, in the redraft leagues, the challenge one for ones, two for twos. Uh, I'm you know I, I readily admit is a uh, is a I don't know a uh, not the strongest part of my game. What character traits that a person has do you think makes someone a good trader or a, not necessarily a bad trader, but a, a less willing trader or a less successful trader? I know what my issue is, and I don't know if it's universal. I suspect there's others with it, and I. I have trouble saying, you know, I have trouble saying no. In order to do a be a good trader, I think you you know, you need to seek out the best deal. So if you're negotiating with two, three, four, five other teams, that means, you know, one, two, three, four teams, you have to say no. And I I can't I have trouble doing that. I have trouble, you know, it kind of explains a few other things in my uh in my life as far as uh like when I you don't want me with you as your as your wingman when you are going to get a negotiate a car. You know, because uh, you're going to pay a lot more than, uh, you, you, I'm not going to help you drive that price down. Okay, I'll take it. Um, so, you know, it's just uh, it's just the way it is. And I, so I, I think you have to be able to go in with a, you know, realize that when you say no to four people, you're not losing four friends. They, you know, they're, they're probably because these, you know, keep, you know, they're saying no to people. And, you know, so you got to go in, you know, it's a business sort of thing and, and, and be willing to say no. And it's just, it's just tough for me. So, you know, that, and then, you know, you just, you have to, along those lines, you should be able, you should present a comfortable persona to deal with. So, you know, and, and, and I'm not saying that my league mates don't do this, but they should make me feel comfortable saying no to them, you know, in our negotiations. They shouldn't make me, not just me, but anybody, they shouldn't make someone feel guilty for not dealing with them or trying to bully them into a deal. If you want to get a deal done, you know, you should be, be, be comfortable give a comfortable atmosphere so that if it doesn't work out, there's always next time. We had a different kind of trade problem. Somebody wrote into the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums about a behavior of two owners in his league, I should say in their leagues, plural. What these two guys did was execute two trades, and apparently most of the owners in both leagues are common. So we have two leagues, uh, and, and they have common ownership, an AL league and an NL league. We'll call the two guys Team A, Team B. In the National League League, they make a deal that's very helpful for Team A. And at the same time, in the AL League, they make a second deal that's very helpful for Team B, basically the mirror image of the National League that benefits Team A. So they're balancing the benefits for both of the trade makers. And the question was, is this ethical behavior? What did you think of that? We weren't there for the actual talk, the actual conversation. All we have was the original poster's version of the question he asked following it up and and the answers i can easily see a manner uh, uh, uh two people approaching and try to uh, as an icebreaker as a way to sort of loosen the the, the, the deals up propose both deals simultaneously yeah if, if if i just propose one of them to you maybe you won't do it but if i propose you know and, and uh there is a way to phrase the 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 different proposals such that it's 
I think they're independent of each other, and, and, and maybe you're willing to do one, and then it, it opens up your mind to do the other two. I don't think it's a, a slam dunk collusion sort of situation. I think there's a scenario where you can actually do this, and if the two t- trades, at the end of the day, if trade, you know, if A to B and B to A in the different leagues are within the confines of that league, I don't see an issue with these two guys doing it. I wasn't there. I didn't hear the conversations. All I have is what the commissioner uh, said he asked, and you know, he made it sound like one of the guys copped to uh, admitting that, that that they talked about the deals together, but we don't know what he asked. We don't know, you know, how you know if what was the question? Did you when you made this deal? Did you make the other deal at the same time? I mean, we don't know what the exact question was. So even even that, I'm not using as the example. And then people, quite frankly, and here's where I'll lose even more friends. Uh, you know, when they see a question like this, they wanna answer collusion, collusion, collusion. And I I just I I'm just leaving it open to the possibility. And I think, you know, the follow-up, I mean, if I am in a league like this, I think you should be able to make this, you know, I think it's a good tactic to sort of try, I don't want to say, you know, if the two league, if the two trades are wholly unfair and you're using the two leagues together to make them fair, that's wrong. But to sort of talk about one league and then talk about the other, if that makes the trading go through because you know we talked about a second ago it's it's kind of hard to make a trade if this is a tactic to sort of get the conversations going and you come up with two independent fair trades i see nothing wrong with that well let's make it clearer then let's suppose that the the original poster the guy who posed the question when he asked the participants in the trade were you intentionally trying to balance the deal in the National League only with the deal in the American League only? And the guy freely says, yes, we did. It was part of the plan. We were balancing all the way. He got stars in the National League. I got stars in the American League. He's going to move up in National. I'm going to move up in American. It was all done with that intent. Now what do you think? We're getting closer to I don't like it, but if the deals are fair within the context of the league, and in one league, when you're doing well, you, you want to get rid of the risk on your roster and you want to get safer players or, or, or perhaps consolidate excess, which is you know two for one or something that's that sort of thing. And if you're behind in a redraft league and you need to make up ground, you need to take the chances. So what, what is a balance, what is a fair trade? And if, and if they just happen to be in opposite situations in the two leagues, I still, I if the trades in a vacuum are fine for that league, I still think it's okay. Now, if you know, if there, if it weren't, if if the if the idea was that you know I'm going to give you 80 cents in the buck in this league and you give me 80 cents in the buck in this league, that's a different story. What I thought when I first read the question, Todd, was suppose these two guys were in two leagues with no common owners. It's exactly the same situation. The only difference is now the other owners are not aware of the fact that the second deal took the second balancing deal took place. Does that change anything? I think you know. Still, the bottom line for me is if 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 the deals unto themselves stand and they wouldn't be. Um, you know, challenged or, or, or questioned or rejected or vetoed, whatever the league rules suggest, I, th- I think it's okay. So if there's any indication that there is an, there is a, an, you know, an advantage, an exclusive advantage for one guy or the other, yeah, I, I don't like that at all. But if, if, if this is the way for both people to benefit, I'm still with it. I'm still for it.
And before we leave this, uh, one person in the posts said uh, the original constitution of rotisserie baseball, which a lot of leagues still use as the basis for their constitutions, expressly prohibits what they called external consideration, I think. So you're not allowed to trade, uh, at least in the early days, you weren't allowed to trade something with a player to be named later. You couldn't have cash considerations. Any external consideration besides the players involved was off limits. And this seems like a pretty clear example of an external consideration, at least so far as if I make a deal in the National League League with you, then any deal we make that's part of the same deal in reality in a completely separate league seems like an external consideration. Of course, the same is true coming the other way. Does that change anything? Now, they don't have that rule in their constitution, and the the original poster said they should add it, and uh, I would suggest that they would. But even if they had that rule, what what would the situation be then? Is it an external consideration or is it not? If the condition is the only way I make this trade in this league is if you make this trade in that league. Yeah, all right. Now we're in the external consideration, and now they're tied together, and that you know that that I'm not going to like. But I never saw an indication that that was part of the sort of follow-up process. That well, this owner said that you know I wouldn't have done this deal if he didn't do that deal. If that's the case, yeah, that that falls under external consideration. You know that you know you you know wash my car, paint my house, you know give me ten dollars right. sort of thing. And therefore, yeah, now I don't like the deal. Uh, then it's, um, ab- you know, that's no, it's no, they're no longer above board. Okay, they're no longer above board. I think it's pretty clear that the one deal wouldn't have been made without the other. Uh, that they, the two deals are tied together, but their constitution doesn't preclude people from doing that apparently. And so we have kind of two questions: Is it against the rules? No. Is it against the ethics of trading? Is a murkier issue. Right now, I you know I, I don't like to base you know I you know reading through the thread, you know you you think that they're you know th- there's enough that, that that they were tied together. I don't know. That's sort of an opinion sort of thing. Um, maybe I need to read the the the, the, the further conversation about the two deals. To, to, if maybe there's a better indication that the two, you know he wouldn't he wouldn't have done one without the other. Um, maybe maybe it's just better say in a more general sense, if we're talking this scenario and, and the thing is, you know, the guy, the proposal is let's do this and this and hey, you know, maybe we could do this one and this one. You don't have to take, you know, you don't have to do the deal in the, in the national league only version of this, uh, of our leagues. But, you know, while we're talking deals, you know, let's, let we, let's, you know, let's just knock them off both at the same time. Uh, if he would have taken the first deal regardless, then, then I don't have an issue. If he would have said no, you know, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to do it unless you do this. All right. Now, uh, now we have external conditions and how we find that out, I don't know, but that's, uh, you know, that and, and how you regulate against that, I don't know either. That's sort of how you regulate against any collusion. All excellent points. It's really hard to say because uh, one of the trades was, I think the guy got uh, Mike Trout but gave up Giancarlo Stanton and uh, Devin Travis. I mean, maybe you wouldn't have done it, but it's a justifiable deal. The other deal was, I don't remember exactly who it was, but it's pretty similar. It was sort of a big stud for two guys with question marks. You know, uh, I think a lot of it does, as you said, I think a lot of it does hinge on whether these deals were made. I won't do one unless we do both. And that changes things both by the rules and ethically because you're really not supposed to do that. But uh, until we know that kind of thing, it's... uh, 
it's a question that we're going to have to wait and find out, I guess. Watch the watch the thread and see what develops. <laughs> it's Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Todd Zola from Rotowire and Masters Ball and ESPN. And Todd, you recently updated your top 20 hitters list for 2016, the rest of the season, at Rotowire and Masters Ball. Before we get started talking about particular players, how do you put together this list? What are the criteria? Well, what I do is I take my, <clears throat> excuse me, I take my my uh, my own initial projections, and I add in what the player has done so far. But what I do is it's 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 all skills based, and I think we've talked about this a little in the past. So what I, what I what I do is there's skills stabilized during the season at different rates, contact rates uh, stabilize earlier than walk rate, which stabilizes a little earlier than line drive rate, which stabilizes a little earlier than power, that sort of thing. And so I have a a weighted average situation, you know, set up on the spreadsheet where uh, strikeout rate, contact rate, they, they stabilize fairly quickly. So the, the percentage of in-season contribution versus my initial expectation is weighted relatively more towards in season when it comes to strikeouts than than the other metrics early on and you know, as the season progresses as these other metrics become more real in within the season they start the, their weight of the of the rest of the season projection starts to increase as well then of course you have to put a, a playing time uh, estimate on the whole thing to, to 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 have it go out and there's team context in there as well with runs and RBIs and, and batting order spot. So once you uh, gather all this together, you have some projections for your hitters and pitchers for what they you expect them to do for the balance of the season, then you rank them from top to bottom, and you see uh, what's happened. And, of course, a lot of players move around on your list from the what you had at the beginning of the season or coming into the season. Did any of the moves on your hitters list, up or down, surprise you? Chris Bryant is, is was one that, that caught my eye. I'm not going to say I've ever been down on Chris Bryant, but other people were much higher on him than I was. And uh, he was in my top 10, and that was a, a, a pretty big surprise, and he remains there to this day. And, you know, look, looking at Chris Bryant, he's just, you know, he's, he's improved his contact a ton. And, you know, kudos to him. That's what he needed to do. And when you improve the contact, everything else flows. It you know you, you know you know it, you get more homers because some of the pitches that you hit that you wouldn't hit before leave the yard and you get you know the runs RBI steals everything goes it's not just a better batting average. Eric Hosmer was a, a bit of a surprise that he moved in. You know, everybody likes Eric Hosmer, but is Eric Hosmer a top twenty hitter? Are you going to take him? You know when you throw in some pitchers as well when in a draft are you going to take him? You know, at the two-three wheel, I, he never seemed a, a type of guy that was like that. But he had improved his contact rate as well, and he runs a little bit. And the other guy that surprised me was uh, Starling Marte. I think we all like Starling Marte. I know uh, Baseball HQ has been very high on Starling Marte, and rightfully so. The guy's running, you know, a lot more than we expected, and steals are down, and homers are up. So at least in a vacuum, players that contribute steals are going to jump up. At a, at, a, at a faster pace than those that hit homers. Andrew McCutcheon of the Pirates, Starling Marte's teammate, is at number 12 on the top 20. 
but he hasn't been the dynamic force most owners expected. He was drafted uh, typically late first, early second round in most of the preseason drafts I saw. Now we're seeing some reports about injury problems with his hand. How confident are you that Andrew McCutcheon is going to stay in the you know top 12, top 15 for the rest of the season? I don't want to use this as an excuse because it's not. It's it's just to put it in context. These were done uh, early May. This this for the run where that, that that you're referring to that I wrote up on RotoWire. Uh, it's a month later. The latest run. He's now in the and this is probably still higher than some people think. So the the question is still quite valid. He still comes in around number 30, 31 for me at this point, which is you know end of the second round, early third. When you throw well throwing some pitchers, it's the middle of the third round. If we're doing a draft now, if we if you pose the question the day after they came out, I think my answer would have been I'm concerned about the steals. I think he's a Andrew McCutcheon's a back of the baseball card kind of guy, but I you know if I I don't I'm not, I not I wouldn't be as confident that it would, even even though his steals were down last year, I think they would continue to drop, which as I just sort of mentioned would knock him down a few pegs in the rankings. So you know a month ago the answer would have been. I think he's going to be fine, except maybe not run as much. So if I was actually doing a draft off this list, I wouldn't have him on my draft list as high. Now, not only – now, the thing about the injury is uh, it's kind of vague if how long he'd been playing through it before it was sort of announced that he had it. And he's he's just – he's struck out a – I think I just looked it up 28 times in his past 102 plate appearances, something like that well over his his norm and that you know that mentions sort of contact rates my driving force at this point and that many strikeouts in the past month is what's knocking him way down and i still have him for seven steals going forward <laughs> and i'll take i'll take the under on that uh and if he if the stump continues to be an issue i'll probably have to override the power numbers as well uh, when i when i do the update the next time and just sort of manually tell the system that the the baseline from which to work isn't the normal Andrew McCutcheon. It's a uh, it's a dinged up Andrew McCutcheon. So I don't have a whole lot of confidence going forward that he's going to jump back even up into the top 20, mainly because of the steals. And if this thumb is any sort of an issue at all, that you know it just takes away the power. And you know he's kind of a guy. You know he wasn't a huge power hitter, but it was enough. To, you know, to get him up there and across the board sort of contributor. So, you know, I get him for mid-teens homers. That thumb's an issue, you know, uh, that that's that's very much in jeopardy. You mentioned the timing issue. Uh, you have to put the list out on a certain day and things change in the meantime. Uh, can I presume that the fact that Mookie Betts wasn't on the list would have changed had, you, had we talked about this a little later on? Yeah, Mookie is now number 10. And even you know what, someone out there is going to say he should be number one or number five. Uh, you know, the thing, part of it is, um, it's really hard for a leadoff hitter in general. Just think, you know, fantasy in general. How many leadoff hitters do we draft in the first round that don't have some exorbitant number of steals? And Mookie runs, but he doesn't. Jose Altuve run, or this year Jonathan Villar run. So just the fact that a leadoff hitter is even in the top 10 is really, really impressive. And that the reason being, they just get fewer runs in RBIs than the, the three, four, five hitters that we generally see that we draft in the top 10. Now, it, it, you know, in a, a month ago, the remember people what the, the, the situation was with the Red Sox was, 
geez, the Red Sox are scoring all those runs, and their weakest hitter is Mookie Betts. Now, you know, the other thing to keep in mind that it's it's an over-under line and that it, it doesn't necessarily mean that a player is going to continue to produce at that new level. Some players get better or, or produce higher, some get lower. He is one that, you know, <laughs> the line was wrong. The line did not move. It's now moved in the other direction. So if, a, if it were a, if I was actually drafting, I probably would have not put as much concern into his early start and may have had him a little bit higher up on a, on a true draft list, maybe not high enough. Someone else may have been more uh, confident that he would bounce back. But, you know, I think one of the comments was he has a track record that's shown, you know, he's going to bounce back. You know, I don't know that he has that track record. He's played, you know, he has he what his, his what he is is off to a good career start. I don't think we can say it has a track record yet. That you know that that at least the outcome was borne out of that sentiment. He has turned it around, and you know going forward, I do think he is a top ten hitter. He's helped by the Red Sox offense, but keep in mind too that they're going to go through some slumps as as good as they are. And, you know, the, that mean the runs and RBI pace is going to wane a bit. I don't think they're going to continue to average six runs a game. Although, I know, it's a little bit granular, but people are predicting a pretty warm summer, which should increase uh, least home runs. Whether that increases run scoring remains to be seen, because home runs are up now, but run scoring isn't. So there is a chance, but we're still we're talking relative if... If that helps Mookie, it helps the rest of the league, too. So just the fact that he's in the top 10 now is is an impressive uh, feat. Second from the top, the last time I checked, BaseballHQ.com's 5 by 5 dollar values amongst all major league hitters, trailing only Jose Altuve, whom you mentioned. Uh, Miguel Cabrera was also not on the list, and he's a middle-of-the-order type hitter. I imagine quite a few of your readers noticed that, especially since he seems to have rebounded from what was a fairly slow start. Uh, what, what was the matter with Miggy at the time of the list, and where is he now? All right, at the time, his, his at the time he was, I think... I, I have it here, 28, 29, something in that range. So he didn't miss by much. Now, he doesn't steal, which is an issue overall that, you know, that, that, that hurts him. But, but I think we, we knew that going in. That's kind of a, a pre-existing condition. The slow start was enough to bring him down. And the other thing, and this is the other element that I alluded to earlier as far as what a projection is, it's, it's playing time. And I, I, I kind of did a comparison you know, even even if you take away, relatively speaking, four games or 20 at bats from a player, that's a, that's enough to really knock the guy down several spots. And he, you know, he came off a season where he didn't play the, the full season. It, we we still weren't exactly sure what we can expect going forward. I've increased his. I haven't. I, he's still docked a little bit. But he's not given the full, he's only going to miss five games the rest of the year sort of treatment that some of the other, you know, top 10 or 15 players might get. So he's, you know, he's hitting, you know, the the projected averages, 313 or thereabouts, so then, you know, 15, 17 homers, all that's fine. But I think because I probably have him, relatively speaking, missing four or five more games than someone like a, a Trout or a Paul Goldschmidt, that's enough to knock him down just a bit. Miggy's fine. I think he always was fine. To me, it was just more of a uh, 
tempering the playing time sort of situation, along with a slightly slow start for him. But I don't think it was I don't think it was anything out of his normal expected production. It just happened to be in the the lower end of his you know what we consider plausible production. And would he be in the top twenty now? Actually, number nineteen right now because I, I start on line two. So uh, yeah, he is right now number number nineteen, and I increased his playing time a little bit. And actually, I think the note I just read was, was you know he had lower back issues. He playing through it, which is just another reminder that he may you know he 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 can sit. He's still a candidate to sit. Uh, he, he played through it this time, but anytime you know a player of his age. You hear back spasms. You know you, you got to be a little concerned, and, and, and you know going forward, um, you know I have him for you know he Eric Hosmer's right above him, so I think I have Hosmer projected for uh, 30, 30 more, 30 more at bats. So that's you know kind of a little bit there, uh, relatively speaking. But I got Miggy at 3.13 average and, and and 18 homers, so the production's fine. If he ends up playing those extra five games. You know, and and uh, he, you know, I'm, you know, I don't want to say I'm wrong, but you know, he ends up to be even further into the top twenty. Before we close out the hitters, Todd, I wanted to talk about Billy Butler of the A's. He wasn't on the list, and that's no surprise. But I wanted to talk briefly about him anyway. His batting average is just two forty four, but his expected batting average, a baseball HQ metric based on skills, is three thirteen, which is the same as Robinson Cano's, the same you just cited for Miguel Cabrera. And he looks like he's gonna be getting some added playing time. Mark Hanna's out for the year, and he's first base eligible, so he doesn't have to be clogging your D eight spot. How interested, if at all, should owners be in Billy Butler, do you think? Well, Canna's been out for a while and He's still not playing versus right-handed hitters. He's played a little bit lately in a National League park, no less, because Chris Davis is hurt. So, yeah, in an AL only, I mean, I was interested before, not horribly so. I guess I'm a little bit more interested. You know, I'm still more interested in Joe Maurer than I am in in Butler, because I don't think he's even an AL only. He's not going to be playing full-time. So, But, you know, he, he isn't a guy that I just categorically dismiss. And AL only, he's not even close to being on my mix radar because, like I said, uh, they're using you know a lot yonder Alonso not a lot more and Valencia's full time anyway, and they got Chris Coughlin, uh to move in and out. So they they're, they're finding players, especially against right-handed pitchers, to use and not have to use Butler. So the only reason he's playing in the National League Park is because Chris Davis has got a little bit of an elbow injury, and I think he might be back over the weekend. And which which point, you know, Butler's back to playing against lefties and the occasional right-hander. You know, they've even been using Yonder Alonso at third base in an effort to get as many lefties in the lineup as they can against a right-handed pitcher. There, I call the A's the, um, you know, the, the MLB Stratomatic team. They're very much into the into the platoon thing, which puts Butler at a disadvantage because he's a right-handed hitter. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Todd Zola from Masters Ball and Roto-Wire and ESPN. And Todd, your top 20 pitchers list came out uh, last week, and you said yourself that Jose Quintana of the White Sox at number 19 might be a surprise to some, considering how much regression we should expect from his exceptional production so far. But at the same time, you made it sound like you're not surprised by Jose Quintana at number 19, and why not? It has to do with the baseline. I think my baseline was probably higher in Quintana coming into the season than other people's and so what other people might expect for regression I wasn't so sure now yeah I mean he was I forget exactly what the ERA was at the time it may have been below two or it may have you know in the twos which is 
obviously very very low so i just it's it's sometimes it's about the landing point and my landing point for Quintana was i guessed and i think still is higher than were other people that just sort of look at the name and and, and have their image of what the guy is and assume where the landing point going to be i i think that my landing point is probably higher and a lot of it has to do with there's some peak you know there's some pitchers we expected to be in the top 20 that aren't and someone's gonna someone's gonna take advantage and move up that spot the Matt Harveys and the Dallas Keuchel's and 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 players of that ilk so he's you know Mr. Consistency is Quintana and um at least at the time the whites I you know I part of what I do is I I, I just I actually it's a similar method that that baseball hq uses to project the wins it's it's based on on bill james pythag theorem and at the time the white Sox are scoring a few more runs which gave him an, an extra win or two which at least in a formula you know helps him out a bit too um they've they've run a little bit cold lately although i still have quintana in the top 20 going for and this is starting pitchers it's it's not all pitchers i think there may be five closers Trying to think anecdotally, not anecdotally, but usually there's around five closers that are in the top 20 overall, four or five or six. So you know, pitching-wise, in the mid 20s. But you know, I, I have him as a top 20 starter going forward. Now the the ranks don't consider consistency. When I do a draft list, I do, and he actually gets points for me as far as that goes. You know, the the John Lackeys and the Jose Quintanas that you know, the, the, it's, depending on how you want to construct your staff. They, they they're sort of the stabilizers of the staff so i i uh i like him on that manner as well so i wouldn't even dock him if i was doing a draft list he would still be high up on my draft i don't have to take him <laughs> as a 19th pitcher but i wouldn't be at all adverse to taking him as my third starting pitcher and i, I don't think other people would have him ranked that high I was surprised, and uh, since he turned out to be the ace of my tout AL staff, pretty relieved to see Jordan Zimmerman in the top 20. Again, why did you not see a regression coming for Zimmerman given the lack of strikeouts? Again, all right, so here we go back to the initial baseline, and I think I was higher on Jordan Zimmerman than most people were coming into the season. I think what we had going on coming into the season, well, all right, so we had him going from the uh, National to the American League, which uh, the parks are fairly parallel, Nationals Park to Comerica Park, but still he's coming to the American League and he and he doesn't strike people out. So I think people that you know that maybe you know there's advantages and disadvantages to being a spreadsheet oriented analyst. So uh, one of the disadvantages, uh, well, I'll say one of the advantages first is the spreadsheet doesn't forget. It doesn't forget that previous to last season he was pretty darn good. And that gets that gets factored in. Um, now, what what it what it doesn't do though is, is take a look at what happened last season, and is there is there a reason for it? You know, was it just a bad year for Jordan Zimmerman, or was there a reason why he was even you know an already low strikeout rate took a bit of a tumble and that sort of thing? So I think that the uh, the spreadsheet didn't care, and it, it gave him a bit of a higher baseline. It did give him the nick for for moving to the national moving to the American League. He's had two outings since my latest update, which is last week, which he's probably going to drop a little bit more. I'm a little bit less, I don't know, optimistic about him going forward than I was, as opposed to Quintana, who I would draft at the position. I don't, you know, I, I would sort of my own draft list would have dropped Zimmerman down a bit. He's not walking a ton of people, but in, I, I, having watched him pitched, 
he looks he looks like he's laboring, which to me, which is an issue. Uh, is there is there something going wrong there? Well, he's he's giving up a lot of homers lately too. You had a reader comment that Drew Smiley, who's on your list, has been horrendous enough, especially lately, that he should be off the list entirely. And this particular reader said maybe Aaron Nola should be on the list. He seems like the real deal to me, Todd. I have to say. So why Drew Smiley and not Aaron Nola or Stephen Matz, as another reader offered? I have this thing for Tampa Bay pitching. It's not working out for me so well this year. Um, unfortunately, uh, Smiley, uh, man, there's the, you can there's a couple different narratives that one can use, and this is where I, I admit as well to having a, a deficiency in my uh, evaluation procedures is, you know, there are so many advanced metrics out there now that you could and, and people did look at Smiley on a very granular level over the past three or four starts, and you know we, we're really really good at figuring out why he was struggling we're not so sure yet to be able to take those reasons and and go forward whether he'll continue to struggle we're getting better at finding predictive measures within small samples but i don't think we're, we're totally there yet so one narrative was you know this is what it, this is what's happening you know i'm i'm concerned and my my narrative was more well he has enough of a history to give him the benefit of the doubt that he's going to turn things around uh, and that's kind of the way I felt at the time, and I, I, I suppose to a certain extent still do. But he, he's not—he's not helping my cause any <laughs> with his with his recent performances. So I—I—I I, I, I understand uh, the the granular concern that people are looking at the pitch mixes and 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 what what pitch is working and what pitch isn't and the velocity on this pitch and location on that pitch is what people can literally do now is is look at look at you know to look at the individual pitches and and that sort of thing and i think that's pretty pretty wonderful that that that's where we are with the uh the current level of analysis i'm uh ah man smiley's a guy at this point where if i'm doing well I'm getting rid of him. If I'm not doing well, I'm taking the chance to, that he that he picks it up. You said that you were definitely skeptical about number nine Garrett Cole of the Pirates, and in particular, you were skeptical about his projected rest of the season ERA of 2.74. And you noted his peripherals are a little worse than last season's. And you plan to rerun your numbers. So what happened when you reran the numbers to Garrett Cole? Not a whole lot. He uh, he still. He's still coming up pretty high. He's one of those guys that has uh, outpitched his peripherals for a little over a year now. And, you know, one of my new latest, you know, sayings, you know, he does that until he doesn't. You know, <laughs> you know I mean, for years, John Garland outpitched his peripherals and then he didn't. So uh, it's, you know, the, the numbers are going to bring him down. The numbers are going to uh, bring his... ERA closer to his expected ERAs, whichever one of those, you know, of the many versions that one, you know, trusts to be the one that they believe in the most. And uh, I don't know. I just, uh, he's he's not striking out. And when you think of Garrett Cole, I, you know, I think of a guy that's got double-digit strikeout potential, and he's just not doing it, which is fine. If, if, if what he is is more of a, you know, a, you know, Jose Quintana type, that's fine. But in the back of my head, I still have this, you know, upside of 11K game, and he just hasn't shown that, at least at least yet. Now he's a guy that he's a guy you almost want to take a couple mile an hour off his fastball to get a little more movement, 
and 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 work in a uh, a breaking pitch and off-speed pitch now and again. And maybe he will learn. He's still very young. Maybe he will learn to do that. So I just uh, any time a pitcher continually outpitches his ERA, even though I have that worked into the system. I still, eh, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm more, I'm waiting for that year he doesn't, as opposed to assuming he's going to continue to do it. Do you factor in any race sewage effect? No, I mean someone made the the line the other day. Uh, we haven't heard any uh, race sewages fix Juan Acasio narratives for a while, so I don't know. I um, you know that stuff too is is you know uh, we hear all the time about you know. Kevin Long fixing a swing until the guy goes into a slump. So I, I don't. I think in, the other thing too, though, that sort of thing gets baked into the the updates because if it's really occurring, it's reflected in the numbers. And the longer the season goes on, the longer those numbers sort of take hold. So I, I think things like that sort of organically get captured and get increasing the outcome. I agree with you to an extent that nobody's hearing much about uh, Francisco Liriano these days as far as a miracle worked either. But uh, I wonder if the influence of the pitching coach could be one of the reasons that a guy like Garrett Cole is throwing less strikeouts, that maybe he's being coached to sacrifice the strikeouts to get other kinds of outs that allow him to get deeper into games, which for the team might be a, a greater benefit, and maybe for Garrett Cole, if it keeps him in games longer, he gets uh, he's more effective the more innings he gets to pitch, and maybe cutting back on the strikeouts is part of that. Perhaps, if he's still, if you know, it... it I guess it comes down. You you want to have a a better pitcher for six innings, or a slightly lesser pitcher for seven innings, and then you know. So now you got to you know rely on your you got to bring in your uh, a reliever one guy earlier that sort of thing. Uh, Pittsburgh plays a lot of close games. That's all. I mean, I don't know. That's always one of those things that um, I don't want to say bothers me, but I don't know enough about the game to to do that. I mean, it seems to me if he's a better pitcher trying to strike guys out, then work around that. Now, I guess you want to see if he can become a, a, a you know a pitcher more than a thrower and get him you know get him deeper into the games and see if he's still effective. So yeah, there is. And if you've got if you you know if you got McCutcheon, Marte, and uh, Polanco chasing balls down in a very really big outfield and a couple pretty good infielders as well, I can see where you might want to uh, have your guy go a little bit deeper into games. And plus, you know the uh, the Pittsburgh bullpen isn't quite the lockdown group that they've been in years past. Tony Watson's shown a couple of kinks. Melanson's Melanson, but Archimedes Caminero isn't hasn't really taken uh, the next step that we may have thought he would as a as a seventh inning guy. So sure, I can see where you know why you know Cole Cole, Cole is my best seventh inning uh, you know is is as good as my seventh inning reliever at this point. So why not try to get him deeper into games? I know when I looked across the board recently uh, in preparing to talk to you today, Todd, at uh, Garrett Cole's skills metrics at BaseballHQ.com, there's a lot here to be concerned about. His ground ball rate's off five points, his line drive rate's up three points, his control ratio's walk rate is up from uh, roughly two to roughly 2.6, which is, that's a lot of walks over the course of a lot of innings as he pitches. You mentioned his strikeout rate is well off, and his command rate as a result of the uh, opposite direction movement of the strikeout and walks has plummeted all the way to 2.7. It was 4.6 last year. 4.6 is very good, and 2.7 in today's baseball is 
average at best. Is there more here than meets the eye as far as being concerned about what Garrett Cole's doing? Yeah, well, I mean, especially because, you know, the narrative that we just sort of agreed with is he's changing his game to get deeper into games. Well, he hasn't, you know, he hasn't lasted, he hasn't thrown seven innings in the last three, you know, five, six and a third and and six and two thirds. So if they are, you know, actively trying to make him into a new guy, I'm not going to say it's not working because, you know, it's it's still a little early, but, you know, he's, 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 he's walked six and struck out fan 13 in the past three games, which is even worse than the 2.7. It's barely over two, the, the, uh, the command ratio. So, yeah, I don't know whether there's something, whether there's, you know, too much micromanagement going on with his game or if it's just a stretch he's going through. Uh, I'm not sure because he's previous to that. Uh, he had one of those weird games where he had, you know, seven innings, zero strikeouts. Uh, you know, since then he's come back with a, with a few more. Uh, I mean, a few more, but not nearly to the level that he was. So, yeah, he's, um, he, you know, he is a guy where I do think you sort of do have to look at, individually and not just assume that he's going to follow the the you know the 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 arc set forth by the rest of the major leagues there's something uh you know i guess the good thing is he's not giving up home runs or we may be really concerned (laughs) he uh he he, that that that's sort of saving him right now is he you know his hit rate eh, it's it's pretty much where it's supposed to be but if he was giving up home runs those walks that you mentioned would be really coming back to haunt him and before we leave the pitchers, you mentioned that you uh, fabbed James Shields. Congratulations on uh. that. <laughs> How excited or worried should owners in American League only leagues be about James Shields? And has he any play at all in a mixed league? To me, he's lost his allure in a mixed league because he's lost that uh, umbrella, that not umbrella, parachute of Petco Park to being able to stream him in a strong National League's park. So he, to me, he's lost that. So... Uh, I don't like to keep a guy for two-week starts because it sounds really smart, but it only happens maybe five or six times a year. And that's, you know, if I'm only going to keep a, use a player five or six times a year, I don't want him even on my reserves. Uh, so I am concerned. Uh, you know, you mentioned I, I did pick him up in an AL-only league. It was uh, an NFBC AL-only, um, and I had the fab hammer, have the have a double-digit lead, in the league, another humble brag, I suppose. But the point being, I uh, I don't feel, and I hate to say this because I get mad when I hear major league clubs say they have to play so and so because they've got him such a certain, you know, X amount of money they're paying him. So I hate to say, sort of, well, if I paid 90% of my budget for James Shield and Fab, I feel as though I'd have to have him in my, in my lineup. So I guess I'm a little more sensitive to that at least frame of mind of major leaguers, but I didn't pay that much. I think I only paid 30, 31% of my budget. So I feel as though I can have him on reserve if I'm not confident that he's going to give me a good start. Uh, I think part of that too is if I did spend 90%, I would be, I realize that, you know what, I don't have any more fab to go out and get some help. So I kind of need shields. So maybe I play him in that way here. I still have enough fab that I can go out and get some help and stay competitive in, in that regard. Uh, and just hope that I don't lose out on some really good pitcher coming over a little bit later because I did have the most fab going into into that move. And the move was, it wasn't so much defensive, but I just, I didn't want someone out there getting them for 200 and have Shields figured out because the narrative is, you know, the weather's really nice in San Diego. That's all well and good. 
how you know a guy at his stage of his career how into it can he be knowing that win or lose it's either one more win turns towards a total of 70 or 75 you know at least chicago has a shot so i was sort of hoping that uh you know pitching in games that could count a little more than san diego might be the the kick needed to turn you know the this guy was once called big big game so it's a narrative i you know i'm a numbers guy but you know i'm a you know person too so i you know i gotta go with the gut and that sort of thing and that's kind of what i was hoping for or at least you know i didn't go all in so i didn't expect it but i wasn't shy about putting in a bid because figuring you know what there's a chance that the guy you know bears down a little bit more and gets rid of it but man you know when steven drew is taking you deep or coming close to it you're in trouble trouble indeed uh, it's a skill package that doesn't look all that impressive when i checked it again preparing to talk to you today there's not there's not a lot here going on a 506 era 153 whip for the season his expected era is a little below that but not a lot below that a runner a little less than a run so you're looking at an expected era over four his whip is as i said 153 i think his expected whip would be about 135 again not great numbers People are saying that he's going to give up even more homers in Cincinnati uh, in, in Chicago. I'm no, I don't know that he's going to give up more homers. I don't think it's, going to, it's not going to go down, but I don't know if he's going to give up more homers because I don't, I don't see a whole lot of cheapies. I think, I don't think he's going to. Uh, it is a home run park, but you know, when when he gives up a homer, he gives up a homer. I want him to cut the walks down, and then, and, and therefore the homers aren't as damaging. Uh, that 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 to me anyway. Um, so if I was, you know, and that's where maybe the bearing down or the focusing could come into could come into play. So it, I, I get in, in, you know, didn't walk a Linny last night, but then he only pitched two innings. So when you walk two in two innings, that is a lot. <laughs> um, but it, to me, um, I I don't, you know, people would give me mention. You know, you alluded to a ground ball as a skill before. I'm not one of those people that necessarily. I, I understand why it's considered a skill, but if you if you uh, don't walk a lot of people, I'm not so sure that I don't want my guy to be a fly ball pitcher just because that, that really helps the whip. And if he gives up a homer, he gives up a homer. But, you know, even last year's walk rate was 3.6, which is terrible. It's even higher this year. He's not striking out nearly as many batters. But when he was a good, you know, when he was good, his walk rate was in the low twos, which, you know, I guess I was sort of and still am hoping that he can, you know, bear down, throw a few more strikes and, uh, and get the walk rate down a bit. Only 31% fly balls and a, and a, a, a very excessive, uh, I think, 18% home run per fly ball rate currently, which is really kind of fluky and bad luck for him in a certain, uh, to a certain degree. So maybe there's some room for improvement. Uh, it's Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Todd Zola from Rotowire and Masters Ball and ESPN. And Todd, you had a discussion on Facebook with Peter Kreutzer, your co-director of Tout Wars, about whether the rules of the league should be tweaked to encourage owners to roster middle relievers and setup men. And I think the underlying idea was we want our fantasy rosters to look a little more like real baseball rosters as they are in the modern game. And of course, we see a lot more bullpen arms beyond closers playing bigger and bigger roles, especially on successful teams. I talked about this last week with Corey Schwartz on the pod, and I'm really curious about your take overall. First of all, how important do you think it is that fantasy rosters look like major league rosters? Yeah, here's where <laughs> I, I'm, you know, sort of contradicting myself, and you know, for for years I've said I don't need my fantasy game to mimic the real game, but 
doing the projections that I do, updated year-to-date projections that I do, and it's just my nature to spend as much time trying to get the, the projection of the seventh reliever of San Diego as correct as, as Zach Greinke or Garrett Cole. It's like, you know, you know I, I sure wish these guys were more integral to the fantasy game. Now, the reason this came up with, with Peter is he has a, a nice little, uh, they, the, 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 this year's tout X, which is a tout head-to-head. And the scoring is tilted to having middle relievers be very, very, very useful part of the game. Uh, there is an innings minimum, so you can't have an exclusive reliever staff. But the, the scoring ratio-wise and includes holds as well, is tilted such that, or maybe doesn't have holds, but has K-9. Anyway, it's tilted towards using middle relievers. So my argument was that I, 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 I wish, or I, I'd like more middle relievers to be more involved in all forms of fantasy, not just this very unique and very fun head-to-head that Peter put together. Uh, I wish they were more integral in all forms. And, and we, we both play, you play in the, in the tout, AL Tout, and I'm in the NL tout. There are plenty of middle relievers rostered just because it's a 12 teams league. I was thinking more about about the mixed leagues. And what most people try to do is they try to arrange the categories so that you bring middle relievers in that way. And my argument was more uh, to why not make the position of middle reliever. Uh, it's to me, it's as much of a position in today's game as a shortstop or left fielder or catcher. There, you know, <laughs> the middle, you know, the middle relief setup man is as integral to the fabric of the game as all, the, all these other positions. And if we give them, a, if we designate them with a position, we should designate a middle reliever with a position. Now we, you know, we can have a, uh, you know, we don't have to. We can keep a couple of pitchers that you can go either way and that, this sort of thing. But I think it would be an interesting twist if, if a staff, and I think we should make a 10-man 10, 10 starting staff now, or 10-man active fantasy staff now too, is to, you know, to have, I don't know, six starters, two uh, relievers, and then two whatever you want to do, or or one closer, one middle reliever, and then whatever you want to do. Maybe six, one, one, two, where you have to have one middle reliever, you have to have one closer, and then you have two flexible spots. And you can define... Uh, a starter by X amount of starts and uh, a closer by X amount of saves and then a middle reliever be everybody else and once you get five saves or whatever it might be or five starts in season you know you could have a middle reliever earn eligibility elsewhere just like a shortstop can get second base eligibility or third base eligibility and the fact that now that at the interesting twist of I don't know do I pick up uh David Phelps, because in the beginning of the year, I thought he was going to be a starter at some point, or Adam Warren, and therefore my middle my middle reliever spot is actually a starter now. Phelps <laughs> Phelps actually has a better chance of being a closer now, but you know, or do I pick a uh, you know do I pick a, a a reliever that I expect to you know do I pick Ryan Madsen, who at the time wasn't closing but we thought might, and therefore I have a middle reliever eligible getting saves for me in the middle of the season. So I think it adds a similar amount. Of, whatever it takes away by forcing you to use a middle reliever, it adds in the, the way you can game game the eligibilities and, and the whatnot. What's the problem with holds as a category? And I have plenty, but I'm curious about your opinion. To me, it's a stat invented by uh, agents to get their middle relievers more money. I don't love saves as a category either. I wish that there was a better way to reward 
those that get saves, but I'm a little bit more open to saves than I am to holds. Um, it just basically, to me, it, it, it's just the fact that it's an unofficial category. It, it, it's even easier to get a cheap hold than it is to get a cheap save. Uh, I don't know that it's, I don't know that there, you know, there there's a certain amount of, obviously there's opportunity in, in team context reflected in the closer, but I think there's less of that reflected in, in a holds reliever. And I, I just think there, there are other and better ways to bring the, well, I, I want to use Tony Watson because he's the, the guy, but he's having a little bit off here, to bring the Tony Watsons and the and the uh, uh, the kid Wilson from, from Detroit, guys like that, to get to, to bring them into the game without using holds as the, uh, as the reason. Primarily because, too, is, and this, uh, you can make this argument with saves, but you know, I want to I want to draft a guy and, and rank a guy based upon what I consider to be his skills. And you know, beginning of the season, projecting holds is somewhat of a crapshoot. So you know, I'm not draft in, in, in the beginning of the season. I'm not drafting holds. I'm waiting to see who develops, and I'm picking the guys up for a buck on the waiver wire. Um, you know, I do draft saves because I do think we have a better grasp of who the closers are, but if, if, a, if the rules are designed so that I don't have to draft the guy at the beginning and I'm able to make up for it in season, uh, I don't like that as a category. You know, I know you can say the same thing about saves, but I, I do think you, it's, a, it's, it's riskier to use that strategy in saves. Well, if it were up to me, and I'm not, uh, I'm not a, a Tout Wars uh, director, and I certainly am not the commissioner of any league, and I'm, and I'm not suggesting that everybody should leap up and and do what I say. But I think there should be two relief pitcher categories. There should we should separate strikeouts from starters to relievers first of all, and have a separate category for reliever strikeouts because then any reliever is a good reliever as long as he qualifies. And the second thing is the main thing you want out of a reliever is a clean inning, and so just count up their clean innings. How many? times did they come in get their outs and not give up any base runners maybe you could say did not give up any runs or allow inherited runners to score there are ways to figure these kind of things out but be that as it may it's baseball hq radio patrick davitt with todd zola from espn and rotowire and masters ball and Todd, during the season, I always ask our experts to talk about their studs and duds, and I'm changing the format a little uh, starting this week. Imagine you're in a draft this weekend for a season that starts on Monday and carries on to the end of the year. So this will dovetail nicely with your uh, recent uh, top 20 lists. Let's start with your top three stud hitters, but we're going to leave out Bryce Harper. We're going to leave out Mike Trout. We're going to leave out Paul Goldschmidt. They're fairly obvious. Okay. Who, do you go at, who do you go with if you've got the opportunity to take the fourth hitter? And fifth and sixth. I think I got to seriously consider Jose Altuve. He uh, he has shown at this point that it's not a fluke. He can sustain a real high hit rate. We know he's going to run, and you know what? He's going to run in with some homers too. So Altuve's up there for me. I don't. I know if you ask this question, I'm pretty sure everybody's going to answer Nolan Arenado at this point. I think you can almost put him on the. Uh, <laughs> I think you can almost put him on the restricted list. But you know you you haven't yet, so we'll go with Nolan Arenado. Eh, man, I can make an argument for a couple of different guys at this point. I'm going to go with Manny Machado uh, as my next as my next guy. I know he's not running nearly as much as he as we you know I don't want to say expected, but he did last season. But I think at this point, and, and I'm not a I'm not a position eligibility honk, so it's not even the fact that he can play shortstop now. Uh, I just think he's he's earned the right to be considered among the top five hitters 
uh, just for you know the, the guy I was looking at too is, is Starling Marte. Now I don't think I have to draft him. Uh, you know if I have a top five pick, I would I probably try to roll the dice and hope he makes it at the return. I'm not sure that he would, but uh, you know we'll go with Altuve, Arenado, and Machado. Who's a hitter in each league who is in your top 20 list but would not be on your draft list if he was available when you needed to draft a hitter? Uh, well, is it cheating to say Ryan Braun? Because I, I think we have to put him in that range. But, uh, you know, we, we, we still have some issues with the injury. So I guess I guess Ryan Braun would be that, that guy for me. Uh, I still have Eric Hosmer ranked high, and I think it's got to do as much – Kansas City was funny. They they lost all their players, and then that's when they went on their little bit of a win streak. I just don't know that I see that happening more. And Hosmer, the production will go down. I don't know what he's going to get that many pitches to hit. So I I wouldn't draft him as high as I have him ranked. Okay, let's move over to a, a sleeper hitter. How about a guy who did not make your top twenty, but you think would be worth a fairly high draft pick if you were drafting for the rest of the season? Well, I, I actually I don't think this is a surprise, but I wrote about Mark Trumbo this week. It just got posted in RotoWire. I'm a believer, and I I mean, so I I don't know if it's a sleeper, but if the you know if the question is whose level of performance do I believe is going to be sustained, I am a believer in 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 what Trumbo's doing, and do have him. You know, I probably take him over as an example over Encarnacion. At this point, moving over to the mound, how about your top three pitchers, excluding the obvious Clayton Kershaw, Chris Sale, and Jake Arrieta? Johnny Lester is I. It's the consistency that we're getting out of John Lester that I just love. Uh, Noah Syndergaard has shown enough that you know you promised me 220 innings, and he's now ahead. You know he's now my he's number two. He's second to Kershaw. But I don't think you can promise me 220 innings. But I'm now at the point where I will uh, I will take the chance that he'll throw enough innings over the course of the season. Uh, since you didn't exclude Madison Bumgarner, I mean, you're still going to keep him on there. Somebody else out there in San Francisco I think fits uh, into that. We don't give him the credit he's due is Johnny Cueto. He's having another good year. I got him. I'll see there's no closes above him. So, yeah, I have the number nine pitcher going forward. Uh yeah, exactly. He's he's doing what 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 Cueto does is he you know he he pitches in the seventh you know little you know slipping a little DFS thing. I love him in cash games just because I know I'm going to get seven innings out of him. And DFS scoring DFS scoring innings are important. So I just Cueto is now back to you know I I'm going to get seven innings out of him. The fact that they were in AT and T Park half the time makes it just that much better. But you know I love I really like what Cueto's doing this year a lot. Who do you have as a sleeper pitcher? Not in your top 20, but capable of being a nice little profit earner. You, you alluded to him before, but we never really got to talk about him, was Aaron Nola. And the, the, the deal with Nola isn't the skills. It's how many innings is Philly going to let him throw. And similar to how 10 at-bats, 20 at-bats bring you down a little bit. The uh, you know Even if you take 15 fewer innings away from Nola, he drops down the list. Now, the thing specifically with Nola is that K rate. Is I think you know coming up, we all thought he'd be a you know an innings eating two or three you know SP two SP three, uh, and you know he's now striking out more than a hitter in inning. He's developed into a, a ridiculous curveball is what sort of what's taken him to the next level. Uh, we think of Icos curveball on the same team, but Nola's hammer is just ridiculous. Uh, so he's a guy that if he gets the innings, I think the strikeout rate should should hold the other the, the underlying metrics. 
first pitch strike and swinging strike are there. So if if Nola gets the innings, he's a he's a candidate. But I you know I don't think you can promise uh, enough innings to get him to that level. And finally, who's a pitcher in each league who did make your top twenty but would not be on your draft list nearly that high? Let's go with Jose Fernandez and. It's not that I don't like him. I just think people like him a little more than me, so I may not actually get a chance at him. I do think you have to – I actually gave him bump up in innings. He wasn't even in my top 20 before, but I think I think Miami said something like 170 innings. I think I gave him like 180, 185 for, for the full season. So I, 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 I don't know if I trust <laughs> – I don't know if I trust that he's actually going to get that. So as good as he is, I'd probably give Jose Fernandez – uh, that nod is the guy that I'm a eh, little bit skeptical about. Okay, Todd, uh, once again, this has been fantastic, uh, very interesting, very informative. Tell us where listeners can keep track of Todd Zola. The home base is, is Masters Ball. Still uh, don't do uh, do the you know the, the, the platinum work, but where you can find me. And, and, uh, and actually, it's where I sort of sneak in some nuggets once in a while is in the fab reports that come up for Towton Labor on Mondays. So that's where you can sort of get some uh, hidden strategies within my little takes and that. And then uh, writing regularly for Rotowire and for ESPN and uh, all over Twitter. And, you know, that's the, uh, the, you know, at Todd Zola. I generally, you know, maybe it's wrong. I generally don't answer questions on Twitter. I like to have them posted on the Masters Ball forum. But, uh, you know, if you, uh, if you, you mention this podcast, I'll answer your question on Twitter. Fair enough, Todd. Thanks a million for doing this. We'll catch up with you again later on in the year, and good luck with all those front-running teams you got going on. Well, we shall see, and uh, you know, hopefully, we'll uh, have something good to talk about next time we speak. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, RotoWire, and ESPN.com, and he's a terrific Twitter follow at Todd Zola, all one word, Z-O-L-A. We have our Baseball HQ commentaries coming up, but first, let me tell you about BaseballHQ.com and why we call it the best fantasy baseball website in the business. It's because BaseballHQ.com keeps you ahead of the game all season long with content across a wide range of great information. This week, in the GM's office column, Brent Hershey's to-do list includes a look at Colorado right-hander John Gray. In the Facts and Flukes performance validation column, analyst Greg Pyron looks at Michael Waka, Ben Revere, Tyler Chatwood, and more players. And in Playing Time Today news coverage, Baseball HQ analysts look at the demotion of Kevin Jepsen from the closer role in Minnesota, at Rich Hill going on to the DL in Oakland, and at a Cubs-A's trade that returns Chris Coughlin to Chicago. All during the season, BaseballHQ.com has daily matchups reports, a daily fantasy dashboard, full analysis of player and team news, and minor league scouting. And of course, there are the projections and other roster management tools you can use to help you dominate your competition. And it's all only at the website with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners, BaseballHQ.com. Now it is time for our regular Friday commentaries. Coming up, we have playing time, frequent flyers, weekend pitcher matchups, and master notes. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a report on Pirates outfield prospect Austin Meadows is BaseballHQ.com Minor League's analyst Rob Gordon. The Pittsburgh Pirates' Austin Meadows is rounding into shape after a serious injury put him on the DL. During spring training, Meadows was struck in the face by a ball and broke his orbital bone. The injury required surgery and he was sidelined for seven weeks. Not surprisingly, Meadows got off to a slow start once he did return to action, hitting just 197 in his first 19 games. 
Since then, however, he's been red hot, hitting 350 in his last 10 games. And for the year, Meadows, who just turned 21, is hitting 302 with a 358 on base percentage and a very nice 554 slugging percentage. He's got 10 doubles, 8 triples, 3 home runs, and 8 stolen bases for AA Altoona. Meadows has a sweet left-handed stroke and a good approach at the plate, and has plus offensive tools. He's a decent defender with good range, but a below-average arm will likely limit him to left field once he reaches the majors. Still, fantasy owners should be all over Austin Meadows, and if somehow he can stay healthy, he has the tools to hit 300 with 15 home runs and 20 stolen bases once he reaches the majors. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on the top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. This week, our extensive prospect coverage includes a column by analyst Chris Blessing about the downside of rushing position prospects, and our ongoing daily call-ups coverage looks at prospects like Pittsburgh right-hander Jamison Tyon, Chicago Cubs outfielder Albert Amora, Seattle right-hander Edwin Diaz, and more call-ups. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's time for our playing time segment, where we look at situations that could mean players getting more playing time or losing at-bats or innings. In this week's edition, we'll look at the Angels' shaky closer situation and the back end of the Arizona rotation. And here to tell you all about it is BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield. The Angels' closer role has been somewhat of a revolving door this season, as Houston Street started the year with the gig, but went down with an oblique and missed most of May. Street's fill-in, Joe Smith, picked up six saves, but hit the DL himself in early June with a hamstring. Street and Smith have both posted underwhelming skills this season. Street's only pitched 10 innings thus far, but his velocity's down below 88, and he's got just three strikeouts to four walks. At 32, with plenty of injury risk, it's highly likely Street won't last all year as the closer. Smith had a 437 expected ERA and just a 30 base performance value, or BPV, through 25 innings as his strikeout rate continues to fall below 6.0 strikeouts per nine. And he has a 1.5 strikeout to walk ratio, which is far from a closer worthy number. The guy to speculate on here is Cam Bedrosian. Bedrosian's off to an amazing start with a 180 ERA through 20 innings of work. The 25-year-old flashes a fastball in the mid-90s in his sub-3 expected ERA, double-digit strikeout per 9, and 50% ground ball rate are all signs that Bedrosian could see higher leverage situations shortly. With shaky skills and health histories ahead of him, Bedrosian looks like a future closer in Anaheim. To the NL, we head to Arizona, where injuries to Ruby De La Rosa and Shelby Miller have opened some doors in the rotation. Archie Bradley filled one opening, and he's put up a pair of impressive outings and seems to be turning things around so far. Edwin Escobar filled in for a couple of starts, but was recently moved to the bullpen. Shelby Miller made a rehab start at High Vesalia, and it seems like he might be able to get a shot at the rotation spot despite his horrific start to the season. Miller has put up better skills in the past, but wait to see if it looks like he's turned things around during his rehab assignment before thinking about touching him in NL-only leagues. The name to watch over the second half here, though, is Braden Shipley. Shipley's Arizona's top remaining pitching prospect with Bradley up. 
And Shipley has an amazing 3.23 ERA over his first 12 starts in the Pacific Coast League and an even more impressive strikeout-to-walk ratio of 52 to 10. That's 10 walks in 75 innings, which is the type of control that shows Shipley has the polish to stick in the majors. Shipley's long-term ceiling isn't huge due to a declining strikeout rate in high minors, but it's looking like he'll get a shot to make an impact in Arizona this summer. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Ryan Bloomfield is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has his playing time commentary here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every Tuesday. Now it's time for our frequent flyers comment, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyers are White Sox new first baseman Justin Morneau and Minnesota right-hander Brandon Kinsler, and here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky. Two weeks ago, in this segment, May 27, 2016 to be exact, we suggested that maybe, just maybe, Fernando Abad should be closing for the Minnesota Twins. We pointed to Fernando Abad's .51 ERA in 21 appearances, among other factors, and our speculation has finally paid off. MLB.com's Rhett Bollinger reported on June 9th the Minnesota Twins manager Paul Molitor announced he'll begin using Fernando Abad and another Minnesota reliever in save situations. Who is that other Minnesota reliever? We'll give you a hint. He was drafted by the San Diego Padres in the 40th, yes, 40th round of the 2004 first-year player draft. Need another hint? He's one of two frequent flyers that will profile this week, a hitter and a pitcher, including a possible comeback player of the year candidate, and the other new Twins closer by committee member, 31-year-old Minnesota right-hander, Brandon Kitzler. But first, before we get to Brandon Kitzler, let's talk about a possible 2016 Comeback Player of the Year candidate, the newly signed Chicago White Sox first baseman, Justin Morneau. Obviously, Justin Morneau is no stranger to the American League Central, having played 11 seasons with the Minnesota Twins. In fact, Justin Morneau made his Major League debut with the Twins exactly 13 seasons ago, today, June 10th. Since his 2003 debut, Justin Morneau has won the AL Silver Slugger Award twice. He is also a four-time All-Star and was named as the 2006 American League Most Valuable Player after batting 321 with 34 home runs. Now I know what you're thinking. Justin Morneau? AL MVP? That was a long time ago. 2006. Ten years ago to be exact. Ancient history, right? Well, we're certainly not predicting that he will win the 2016 AL MVP. After all, Justin Morneau, like all of our frequent flyers, are long shots who may be worth a flyer if they are available in your league. But here's the thing. Prior to his concussion on May 13, 2015, Justin Morneau was batting 310 through 49 games with the Colorado Rockies. The year before, 2014, Justin Morneau batted 319 with 17 home runs in 135 games. More importantly, Justin Morneau had a contact rate of 88% in 2014, where we consider a contact rate of 90% or higher to be elite. Morneau also had a linear-weighted power index of 115 in 2014, representing above-average power where 100 is equal to the league average. Yet, because of his age and his injury history, more specifically his current elbow injury that will probably keep about until after the All-Star break, Justin Morneau is likely to be overlooked in most leagues. 
Another player who's likely to be overlooked in most leagues is 31-year-old newly appointed Twins Closer by Committee member Brandon Kinsler. You may remember Brandon Kinsler from the Milwaukee Brewers, where he spent six seasons in the Milwaukee bullpen and made 172 relief appearances with a career 10-9 record and a 338 ERA. But Brandon Kinsler never had a major league save. All that changed on Wednesday, June 8th against the Miami Marlins when Brandon Kinsler earned his very first career save at the major league level for the Minnesota Twins. Signed by the Twins as a free agent the offseason, Brandon Kinsler is likely to be overlooked in most leagues because of his 6.43 ERA for the Brewers in 2015. Not good. Plus, his velocity was down by almost 2 miles per hour in 2015. So what happened? Like Justin Bordeaux, Brandon Kitzler went on the DL in May 2015 and missed the rest of the 2015 season due to injury. However, Brandon Kitzler's leg injury appears to be fully healed in 2016, and Kitzler was reportedly throwing in the mid-90s at AAA Rochester prior to his May 7th call-up. But velocity is not Brandon Kitzler's calling card. Kitzler relies on a heavy sinker that has produced a 67% ground ball rate in 2016. Remember, we consider any pitcher with a 47% or higher ground ball rate to be an extreme ground ball pitcher. Brandon Kitzler certainly qualifies. From a skills perspective, extreme ground ball pitchers usually have a lower strikeout rate. Yet Brandon Kitzler currently has a dominance rate of 6.3 strikeouts per nine, where we consider seven strikeouts per nine to be elite. Ground balls plus strikeouts. Now that's an excellent combination, just like our combination of Justin Bordeaux and Brandon Kitzler, our frequent flyers for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has our frequent flyers comment here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's our weekend pitcher matchups report. The matchups are rated on a scale centered on zero. Pitchers rated plus one or higher are strong bets. Those under minus one are strong sits. In between, well, you'll have to gauge those decisions based on your own risk tolerance and league context. Here with a look at a Saturday National League matchup of young stars with Philadelphia right-hander Aaron Nola in Washington to face Nationals right-hander Tanner Roark. A Sunday American League face-off that sees Detroit right-hander Michael Fulmer at Yankee Stadium to face right-hander Michael Pineda, plus two other weekend matchups, is BaseballHQ.com pitcher matchups analyst Greg Fishwick. The Cleveland Indians have taken over first place in the American League Central with the Majors' eighth-best record, and they are scoring over a half a run more per game than they allow, which is the eighth-best run differential. The Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim are seven games under 500, 24th in Major League Baseball. They allow four-tenths of a run more per game than they score, which is 21st. And they are five games under 500 at home, which is better than only four other teams. Give the edge to the Indians in pitcher-friendly Angel Stadium, helping make Trevor Bauer a high upside risk-reward wildcard play, even with his matchup rating of minus 052. Bauer began the season in the bullpen and made his first start on the last day of April. After stretching it out in his first two efforts, he had two PQS dominant starts, but he followed those with two PQS disasters. Past two starts have been a PQS 3 and a PQS 5. Despite his somewhat spotty PQS log, Bauer is showing some strong base performance indicators. He has increased his ground ball percentage and decreased his fly ball percentage. He has maintained his strikeouts per nine, which we call dominance rate, and decreased his walks per nine, which we call control rate. 
he has his expected ERA down to a career best 381, his WHIP down to a career best 128, and his base performance value up to a career best 90. Bauer shows signs of maturing into his potential, and it may finally be time for a safer, smoother ride on his bandwagon. Matt Shoemaker has reportedly developed a devastating split-fingered fastball since we last analyzed him for his start on April 24th, when he was in the midst of five PQS disasters over seven starts. He's now had three PQS dominant outings in his past four efforts. In 39 innings pitched over his past six starts, he has an elite command ratio of 43 strikeouts to three walks, an expected ERA of 294, and a base performance value of 180. His matchup rating of 017 may be lagging behind his improved performance, so at the risk of jumping the gun, you may want to run with him on this one. The Detroit Tigers are a game over 500 and score a tenth of a run more than they allow. On the road, they're three games under 500, ranking 21st. Against right-handers, the Tigers are two games over 500 and rank 16th, but their strength of schedule ranks only 24th. Over their past 30 games, the New York Yankees have the fourth best record, and over their past 20 games, the third best record. The Pinstripers are four games over 500 at home, but versus teams at or above 500, they're only 13 and 21. They allow three tenths of a run more per game than they score, but their strength of schedule is eighth. These two teams are fairly evenly matched in hitter friendly Yankee Stadium, but is that enough to recommend either Michael Fulmer or Michael Pineda? both of whom have negative matchup ratings? Michael Fulmer is the talk of Motown after the fourth consecutive strong start for the 23-year-old with a 95-mile-per-hour fastball. 28 and a third innings over those four outings, Fulmer has allowed only one earned run and has a strikeout-to-walk ratio of 27 to 7. The only catch is that over his past six starts, Fulmer has enjoyed a hit rate of 23% and a strand rate of 85%. Still, for the 48 innings over those eight starts in his major league career, he has an expected ERA of 336, a whip of 117, a control rate of three walks per nine, and a dominance rate of 9.3 strikeouts per nine for a command ratio of 3.1 strikeouts per walk and a base performance value of 113. That's hard to resist, even with the worst matchup rating among our eight at minus 079. We last checked in on Michael Pineda for his start on April 30, and he struggled to the first of three consecutive PQS1 disaster outings, later adding a fourth on May 28th. BaseballHQ.com's Stephen Nickran advises sitting him for his home starts because of his home run propensity, but it's hard to ignore Pineda's BPIs, and he does have a PQS3 and a PQS2 in his past two efforts, with the first of those against the Tigers in Detroit. Pineda has been the victim of a 38% hit rate and a 63% strand rate. In 66 innings over his 12 games started, his strikeout-to-walk ratio is 71 to 17. His first pitch strike rate is 66%, and his swinging strike rate is 15%. His earned run average is a frightening 614, but his expected ERA is only 364. His matchup rating may be minus 042, but his base performance value is 133. So which will it be? Bad luck or good regression? The Philadelphia Phillies allow a run more per game than they score for Major League's fourth worst run differential. After a surprisingly nice start to the season, they've fallen below 500 and have the Majors' third worst record over their past 30 games. The Washington Nationals lead the National League East. Their record against right-handers ranks fifth, their overall record ranks second, and their record against teams below 500 ranks first. 
The Nats outclassed the Phillies in pitcher-friendly Nationals Park, but Aaron Nola's matchup rating of 148 is the lone ranger in the recommended range, among those we're looking at this weekend. And Tanner Roark is a strong risk-reward wildcard with his matchup rating of 041. So what to do? Aaron Nola may be channeling former Philly Steve Carlton, as he's clearly an outstanding starting pitcher on a below 500 team. His peak U.S. dominant-to-disaster ratio is 50% dominant to 8% disaster. In his only PQS1, April 16, the Nationals lit him up for seven earned runs. In his nine starts since then, he's given up more than two earned runs only once. He held the Nats to two earned runs on six innings pitched Memorial Day. He's benefited from an overall strand rate of 77%, which has been 91% over his past five starts, but his base performance value of 162 says his skills far outweigh his luck. Sure, the Phils are underdogs in this one, but Nola is a lead alpha. Tanner Roark's base performance value of 86 and expected ERA of 350 may be enough to slide by for the Nationals in most cases, including against the sub-500 Phillies. But consider the following of Roark's BPIs. A first pitch strike rate of 55%, a swinging strike rate of 9%, a control rate of 3.3 walks per nine, and a command ratio of 2.4 strikeouts per walk. A PQS dominant to disaster ratio of 33% dominant to 25% disaster. That should be enough for you to stay away. The New York Mets have had the easiest strength of schedule in the majors so far this season, yet over their past 30 games, they're only 15-15. and 15. They've made their hay versus teams under 500, and the Milwaukee Brewers are under 500 overall, though they are over 500 at home in hitter-friendly Miller Park. Only six teams have worse run differentials than the Brew Crew, but they have been solid over their past 30 games and against lefties. Still, the Mets have the edge in this one, making Steven Matz and his matchup rating of 089 even more appealing. We took an early look at Matz for his first start of the season on April 11, and he was clobbered by the Miami Marlins, allowing seven earned runs. Since then, he's allowed more than two earned runs only once. His PQS log looks erratic and shows a dominant-to-disaster ratio of 50% to 30%, but his ERA log looks much better. It shows four zeros, four twos, and a three. Now let's look at the worst of Matz's BPIs. He has only a league average swinging strike rate of 10%, and he's benefited from a strand rate of 78%. Okay, that's it. Now let's look at the other side of the ledger. An expected ERA of 289 and a whip of 113. A first pitch strike rate of 67%. A control rate of 1.9 walks per nine. A dominance rate of 9.1 strikeouts per nine. And a command ratio of 4.7 strikeouts per walk for a BPV of 146. He shut out Milwaukee at his home park and he should do well against them in their home park. The 150-pound Zach Davies started his season with three losses and now has gained attention with four wins in his past six starts. Again, his PQS log and earn run log tell different stories, but his begins with a PQS dominant to disaster ratio of 20% dominant to 40% disaster. But in his seven starts since his first three clunkers, he too has allowed more than two earned runs only once. The trouble is, his BPIs are not too strong a hit rate of 19% over his past six starts, an expected ERA of 396 on the season, along with a control rate of 2.9 walks per nine, a dominance rate of 6.8 strikeouts per nine, and a command ratio of 2.4 strikeouts per walk for a base performance value of 71. It's safer to take a wait-and-see approach with Zach Davies and his matchup rating of minus 018. So this weekend, our lone starter with a matchup rating in the recommended range is Aaron Nola, 
but you may want to play wild cards Trevor Bauer, Matt Shoemaker, Michael Fulmer, Michael Pineda, and Steven Matz. Leave Tanner Roark and Zach Davies in the deck. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a BaseballHQ.com pitcher matchups analyst who has his weekend matchups commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Masternotes, a weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I want to talk about my all-value team. As we hit the 60-game mark, it's a decent time to pause and take stock of the fantasy season so far. I'm currently third in my tout American League League, a mile back of leader Larry Schechter, and I want to decide if I have a team that might have some staying power. To do that, I like to use a process that assesses my team for what I call value. Of course, value is in the eye of the beholder, and it means different things to different fantasy players. But what I'm looking for as value is the combination of production and profit. How I measure player value for this purpose starts with taking the player's year-to-date production in dollars as calculated by the BaseballHQ.com custom draft guide, the CDG. The CDG lets its users tailor the value algorithm to reflect both league rules, such as tout wars using on-base percentage instead of batting average, as all leagues should, as well as rostering habits like hitter-pitcher splits and stars and scrubs versus balanced. Once I know the player's production, I subtract his salary to determine his profit or loss. And then the critical last step is to add the profit back to the production to create the player's value. Note that a player can suffer a loss versus his salary and still create positive value, provided his production is big enough and or the loss is small enough. The beauty of this system is that a player has two paths to creating value. He can just be very productive, or he can be somewhat productive while also being very profitable. So a $40 player who was bought for $38 is a $42 value, his $40 production plus the $2 profit. But so is a player who produced $30 for $18 in salary, or a $22 player with a $2 salary. My original plan for this edition of Master Notes was to value all the players on my tout American League roster and then tell you about it. Then I remembered some excellent advice I once got from Ron Chandler, who told me, your own team fascinates you, but it bores everybody else. So instead of sticking with my plan and boring you with my team, I'll give you the names of the players atop the Determination of All Value Individual Tracking Tool, the DAVIT for short, and bore you with that. I'll be presenting each of the players in increasing order of value, with the last player being the Davit MVP of the 2016 season so far. Salaries were based on the Tout Wars Mixed 15 Team Auction. I'll add some comments as we go, which is part of our value for you. Let's start with the hitters. Our two catchers are Jonathan Lucroy of the Brewers, a $19 value but a $17 salary, making a $2 profit and a $21 value, and catcher Wilson Ramos, a $29 value because he was a $3 salary with $16 of production. These two catchers demonstrate the two paths to value. Lucroy at $17, Ramos a $3 sleeper. Only one other catcher you should know, Jason Castro of the Astros, has put up double-digit value. 19 catchers this year so far have actually provided owners with negative value. 
Our next player is third baseman Nick Castellanos of Detroit. A $3 salary at Tout Wars Mixed, but an $18 production gives him a $33 value because of the big profit. Castellano noses out all-world hot cornerman Nolan Arenado, whose position-leading $33 of production is actually decreased by a buck because his tout buyer spent $34 on him and therefore is in the red by a buck. Similarly, Josh Donaldson and Chris Bryant have production around the $30 mark as well, but their owners overpaid by $8 in Bryant's case and $9 in Donaldson's. At first base, our next player, Will Myers of the San Diego Padres. An $8 salary, but a $26 production so far, adding up to a $44 value. Fantasy owners have been waiting for Myers for years, and after most of them gave up, Myers has delivered this year with a $26 year-to-date all-round performance. 12 homers, 33 RBIs, 7 nice bags, a 327 on on-base percentage, and 38 runs scored that cost his owner just 8 bucks. Our next player is a $50 value, the outfielder Mark Trumbo of Baltimore. $10 salary, $30 of production. The leading home run hitter in Major League Baseball has also rung up a useful 346 on on-base percentage and a 294 batting average. But all that stat goodness rests on a 23% home run per fly ball ratio, which is very high, 10 points higher than Trumbo has managed in recent years and just pretty darn high in general. Is Trumbo a sell-high candidate? Certainly worth thinking about. At $52, our next player is outfielder Mookie Betts of Boston. You remember what I said about not talking about your own team? Well, I'm making an exception here, because I was very high on Mookie Betts going into the Tout American League auction, and I ended up paying $38 for him, to the chortles of many at the table. So, ha, I'm $4 to the good just on production alone, and I'm plus $14 on value. So, yay me. Still doesn't offset my $30 purchase of Justin Upton, though. At $53, outfielder Odubel Herrera of Philadelphia, a $3 salary on a $28 production. His 422 on on-base percentage is fourth in Major League Baseball. He's popped five homers with eight stolen bases into the bargain and pushed his walk rate to over 15% while cutting his K rate by seven points. These sound like sustainable skills gains to me. However, his stolen base success rate is well under 70%, so he could easily start seeing some red lights. At $53 also, outfielder Gregory Polanco of the Pirates. A $17 tout salary, a $35 production year-to-date so far. He's having a kind of similar year to Herrera, but with more power. More runs, more RBIs, four more homers. But watch out for Polanco. His hit rate is up more than 40 points from last year, and his home run per flyball rate has more than doubled. He's also under 70% stolen base success rate, so there's plenty of room to be nervous here. At $55, outfielder Ian Desmond of Texas. $13 salary, $34 in production. He's one of the year's feel-good stories. The little shortstop who couldn't, reborn as an outfielder who really can. He has 8 homers, 12 stolen bases, a 352 on on-base percentages, and he's still shortstop eligible. This season will doubtless be trotted out by proponents of the contract year theory of top performance. I don't know if you believe it, I know I don't, but either way, Ian Desmond is having a fine year. At $55 as well, 
designated hitter David Ortiz of Boston. $17 in tout, a $36 production so far, and another feel-good story, the grizzled veteran who always could, and as it happens, still can. He's third overall and on base at 425. He's tied for fifth in home runs. He's leading Major League Baseball in doubles and total bases. And he's almost as old as I am, and I can barely walk down the stairs in the morning. There have already been rumblings that this might not be Ortiz's last season after all. If he comes back, would you go 30 bucks in 2017? Jumping up to $71, second baseman Jose Altuve of Houston. Somebody spent $31 for him at auction, and he's delivered $51 in production. He's confirmed his 2015 power jump, setting a pace for 25 swats and 50-plus stolen bases, which he's copping at a 95% success clip. If he does go 25-50, by the way, he'll be only the eighth player to do it in Major League history, joining Barry Bonds, Ricky Henderson, and another Houston second baseman who turned the trick as a Hall of Famer for the Big Red Machine in Cincinnati. Altuve would also be the first player since Hanley Ramirez turned a 2050 back in 2007 with the Marlins. He's not quite the value leader in this exercise, but $51 of production year to date does lead all of Major League Baseball. And finally, our most valuable player, shortstop Jonathan VR of Milwaukee, bought for a dollar at draft, $43 in production for an $85 total value. VR was pushed out of Houston to make room for Carlos Correa, and we were told that he was holding down the shortstop spot in Milwaukee until he could get pushed out of there by Orlando Arcia. Maybe not. Besides leading Major League Baseball with 22 steals and a 76% success rate, VR has five home runs, and his on-base percentage is at 405. He's nearly doubled his walks, which looks sustainable, but he also has a 40% hit rate, which doesn't. On to the pitchers now. Three closers. I required three closers, and they were Zach Britton of the Orioles, Fernando Rodney of the Padres, and Roberto Osuna of Toronto. Both Osuna and Rodney benefited from depressed auction value because of the uncertainty about their permanence in the closer role. This happens every year. Take the guy who has the role, unless you're me, and the guy who has the role is Jim Johnson. Our first starter at $24 of value, Johnny Cueto of San Francisco. He went for $16. He's delivering $20. It's a little $4 profit and a $24 value. It's a nice bounce back season for a wily veteran starter who had a disappointing playoff run last year. At $25, starting pitcher Jason Hamill of the Cubs. He went for $3, has produced $14 so far for that $25. If he finishes this year with double-digit production, it will be the third year in a row. He's also managed to hang up some pretty decent values for a few years now, mostly because nobody ever believes he can do it again, even after he did it again. The next starting pitcher, Marco Estrada of Toronto. He was bought for a buck, and he's returned 15 so far for a nice $29 value. He's like Hamill, except it's for the second year in a row, not the third. Many of his skill metrics look like they're going the wrong way, and his luck metrics look out of the norm. But that might be because the metrics are calibrated for the current model of low-ball, ground-ball pitchers. Estrada, you see, is a high-ball, fly-ball pitcher, over 50% fly-ball rate the last few years, and maybe because batters see so few of these type of pitchers, all of this works in mysterious ways that defy the metrics. Our next starting pitcher into the $30 range we go with Aaron Nola of Philadelphia. Bought for a buck at auction on a speculative bid, surely, and he's returned $17 so far for a $33 value. 
As a rising rookie, he looked like he might be a serviceable potential number three starter, a low K rate but great control. But look at what he's done. He's popped his dominance rate up to around 10 strikeouts per nine and further reduced his control rate to 1.7 walks per nine this year. His resulting 5.7 command ratio is fourth best among Major League starters. Up at $35, John Lackey of the Cubs. There's something to be said for dependability. It seems like Lackey always goes for 5 bucks at auction, that's what he went for this year, and it seems like he always delivers profit. You have to go back to 2011 to find a season where you wouldn't have cashed a $5 bet on John Lackey. And finally, our most valuable pitcher... Don't need a drum roll here, it's not really that big of a surprise. Despite his high salary, our top value pitcher is Clayton Kershaw of the Dodgers, a $36 value. He went for $38 at draft, he's only produced $37, so he's actually lost a buck. But even at that, his value has surpassed every other pitcher in the majors. His ERA is 199 as we speak, his whip 065. He has a dominance rate of 10.6 strikeouts per nine, his control is 0.6 walks per nine, and his command, an astonishing 18.7 strikeouts for every walk. Nuff said. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes free at the BaseballHQ.com website, and at the end of the printed version, there's a list of the worst values of the year so far as well. You can also get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 10th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 28 of the 2016 Fantasy Baseball season. Of course, I want to thank our guests for this Friday edition of the show. From Masters Ball, Rotowire, and ESPN.com, it was Todd Zola, one of our favorite guests, always full of information. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Minor League Minute analyst was Rob Gordon. Our Playing Time commentator was Ryan Bloomfield. Our Frequent Flyers commentator was Alex Becky. And our Pitcher Matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I have a Facts and Fluke Spotlight piece this week at BaseballHQ.com taking an in-depth look at the breakout season of Baltimore right-hander Chris Tillman. In the meantime, I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. And please send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. 
Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.